Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real Talk, Black Talk. Five, three. She's pure alligator, pure white. Two. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. Now a story about an extremely rare albino tree. If you pass it on the street, it might look dead. It's not dead. It was almost killed, but now it's going to survive, thanks in part to this guy. My name is Zane Moore. I'm an undergraduate botany student at Colorado State University, and I'm studying chlorophyll-deficient redwoods. In other words, albino redwoods. In other words, albino redwoods, yes. One of which is growing not too far from you. Yeah, there's an albino redwood growing about 45 minutes north of San Francisco in a little town called Katahdi, and it is the tallest albino redwood we know about. And it's also really special because it's a chimera. Two different sets of DNA, two genetic individuals that are inside one bud or one meristem of a plant. And does that make this tree kind of half albino and half not? Yes, that makes this tree half albino and half normal green redwood. Explain how rare a tree like this is. Okay, well, a tree like this, a chimera, is extremely rare. We know of only about 10 chimeras uh, in the redwood species. Um, When you say 10 per species, you mean there may be thousands and thousands of redwood trees out there. There are a total of 10 like this one. Yes, millions, really. There are millions of acres of redwood forest in California. There are only 10 of these trees known. Wow. So extremely rare. It was originally going to be cut down to make way for a set of railroad tracks, and I understand now it's just going to be moved. How difficult is it to move a, a great big redwood tree, let alone an albino one? It can be a pretty hefty task to move one of these trees. The tree is 52 feet tall um, and has a pretty nice crown spread of probably about 30 feet. So that means that its root spread is at least 30 feet out away from the base of the tree. In order to move a tree, they have to dig a hole around this entire root system and lift the tree up. Uh, And then what they're planning on doing is making tracks to slide the tree over across the street and in a safer location. Okay, so explain how this albino redwood became a national celebrity. Uh, Tom Stapleton, an arborist uh, who I'm working with, and I found out that this tree was due to be cut down at the beginning of April. 
So we immediately went to the media, to the local paper, the Press Democrat out of uh, Sonoma County, and immediately, within a few hours that day, the story went national and even international to some places in the UK also. What could scientists learn from studying a tree like this? Well, studying albino plants can be, for one, really interesting because albino plants produce very limited amounts of chlorophyll, the molecule that allows plants to photosynthesize. If scientists can better understand what allows a plant to make chlorophyll and what allows a plant like an albino not to make chlorophyll, we might be able to make better photovoltaic solar cells uh, and potentially make better, more efficient, sustainable energy for the future by learning more about how plants take the sun and make it into everything that we use today, like food, oxygen, wood. Be so when you have a sunburn, it's a sign that the sun is actually damaging to the skin, and the skin is trying to protect itself, and there's a lot of inflammation, and that's the redness that you're seeing, is the skin kind of trying to protect itself from the damage from the sun. Is simple tanning a mild version of sunburn? It's a little bit different, but it's also a sign that there is damage happening to the skin cells. So even normal, healthy-looking tanning can have a little, can be causing a little bit of damage? Right, and I think we really need to think about that idea of the healthy tan, that there really isn't such a thing as a healthy tan. And we know especially from people who are using indoor tanning beds that doing that is really damaging the skin, and those people are definitely increasing their risk for skin cancers, including melanoma, which can be a deadly form of skin cancer. And we'll get to that later. Sure. How long does it take to uh, get a serious burn? Can it be... Less than 15 minutes? It really depends on what your skin type is, how fair or how dark you are. So people who have darker skin have more natural protection in their skin. They have more melanin, which is the natural um, the natural protection that gives your skin color. So they can stay out longer than somebody who's really fair, somebody with light skin or redhead. Uh, they certainly can, yeah, even within 15 minutes can start to burn. When our skin is exposed to a lot of sunlight on the beach, for example, with no sunscreen, what actually is happening to it? So the sun is delivering a lot of energy right into the, into the skin, and that can damage the DNA. And we know that DNA is really important for making the cell work the way it's supposed to. And when you have mutations or damages the, the DNA, eventually that can lead to a skin cancer. Joining us now from Alabama, Congressman Mo Brooks, uh, and he's part of the what the Wall Street Journal is calling the GOP's deportation caucus. Ooh, that really scares us. And uh, he's with us now, Congressman. Great to talk to you, sir. How are you? My pleasure. Throw me in that briar patch. <laughs> I love it. Let's talk, though, about what the, what the quote, lamestream media is saying about this. Ron Fournier, who's been on this show many times, uh, from the National Journal, was on Fox News Sunday, Congressman Brooks, saying this. The fastest growing voting bloc in this country thinks the Republican Party hates them. This party, your party, cannot be the party of the future beyond November if you're seen as the party of white people. Your reaction? Well, 
this is a part of the war on whites that's being launched by uh, the Democratic Party. And the way in which they're launching this war is by claiming that whites hate everybody else. It's a part of the strategy uh, that Barack Obama implemented in 2008, continued in 2012, where he divides us all on race, on sex, greed, envy, class warfare, all those kinds of things. Well, that's, that, that's not true, okay? And if you look at the polling data, every demographic group in America agrees with the rule of law enforcing and securing our borders and every one of them understands that illegal immigration hurts every single demographic group it doesn't make any difference if you're a white american a black american a hispanic american an asian american or if you're a woman or a man every single demographic group is hurt by falling wages and lost jobs and, and so the Democrats, they have to demagogue on this and try to turn it into a racial issue, which is an emotional issue, rather than a thoughtful issue. If it becomes a thoughtful issue, then we win and we win big, and they lose and they lose big, and they understand that. And as they get more desperate, where they're going to argue race and things like that to a much heightened emotional state. And I'll give you an example. If, if the law had been enforced two years ago on immigration, we would not have this surge today. So the president's decision to not obey the law to not deport people who came here unlawfully two years ago is what sent the message out across the globe that if you come into America, break our laws, this president will give you amnesty. So as a consequence, the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, Tom Marino, Ruckus, uh, over the weekend, uh, Raul Labrador gave a great speech on Friday night talking about the Democrats having causes. They are the ones with their policies that are causing these illegal alien children to risk their lives and to die coming to America, to be subject to all kinds of physical and sexual abuse. The Democrats are solely responsible because it's their policies that are telling these kids, we'll reward you if you come. I don't think Raul Labrador would probably say there's a war on white, so Congressman, don't you? Uh, that's that's a little uh, – that characterization is a little, uh, little out there. But that, that doesn't affect what they're doing, though. And that's that's the political game that they're playing. Okay, well, they're they playing the race. They're playing the race card. They're playing the race card, just like they played the war on women card. And you know, they, they, this is this is what the left does. But I just think I mean, that phraseology might not be the best choice. <laughs> Call me a nigger. Go I, ahead. I called you a nigger. You're a nigger. Nasty fucking nigger. Okay. You might want to get because your... he's a fucking loser. That's why he thinks he's gonna get something out of it. Oh no, we're not. I don't. I don't. I don't sue people. Oh, he knows the cops. How many cops have I stripped for? You ain't getting fired, bitch. Okay. Tell him, dude. You will fucking kill him. Don't oh. even fucking. I'm telling you right now. That's okay? very, very good. I will fucking yank his ass out the side. Please do. I don't know. Why? Because he wants to put it on YouTube, try and act hard because I called him a racist because he's a racist, ignorant nigger. And they're pushing, not just put, and there's, you know, the thing about Spike and all that bullshit that he's talking is that he's waving the race thing around as if all these people that were pushed out were just black people. People are getting pushed out of Manhattan. White people, Jewish people, because it's, it's unaffordable for anybody. It's for the elite of the elite. So it's not just Brooklyn. It's not just Bed-Stuy. I mean, it's the whole city. It's, you know, the, like New York as a whole. We're, everybody's getting pushed out. You could go get an apartment now for $2 million in Manhattan. It's not something that, like, it's not your dream house. So, you know, and the thing also about that little shit-stained spike, you know, he's getting personal calling me stupid and all that shit. Like, I, I'm not with him. you're a bad director, too. He said I'm a bad director. When was the last Spike Lee film you saw? Uh, exactly. 
Torrance Collier is your average 11-year-old when he's at home, but at school, it's a different story. Comments like calling them a rapist, the black kid wants to talk, um, mudslide. I feel horrible about myself. And sometimes I wonder if they're right. The Colliers say it's not just the racism. Torrance has also been assaulted at school and around town. It started more than a year ago after the family moved back from out west. Now they're watching their son disintegrate. I feel kind of scared. And I ask myself, why does everybody hate me so much? Denzel Washington's experience shooting his new movie, The Equalizer, in Boston revived memories of racial discrimination he encountered more than 30 years ago. Washington recalled about how three decades ago he was in Boston with wife Pauletta Learson Washington, who was performing in a play, and some people in his hotel thought he was a pimp and she was a prostitute. Security was called and a fight broke out. Washington told the assembled media, I didn't know how to fight, but I knew how to win. He also recalled how he walked to his wife's show one night and was called the Nigger! Don't forget to pray, cause there'll be hard times. Hell do they expect to cause a riot broke out? Time we try to stand up and defend our own neighborhoods, they send the cops in to bust us in our heads. You feel so strongly about all this hurricane, why aren't you out there? Instead of sitting in here drinking. I'm drinking club soda, first of all, and I'm in here because you asked me to be here. But you're right, maybe I should go down there. Yeah, maybe I should go grab my gun, shoot me a half a dozen of them nigga-hating cops, huh? What you think, Bucky? I know I can get me about five of them before they get me. Ed? Huh? About you, you want to come? The Hurricane, <laughs> Reuben Carter. He was born in New Jersey 76 years ago as Reuben Carter, but most people knew him as The Hurricane, his ring name earned after a dizzying career as a ferocious middleweight boxer with a mean left hook. Reuben's hardest fight was not in a boxing ring, but in a Patterson, New Jersey courtroom where prosecutors twice tried and twice convicted Carter and his co-defendant, John Artis, of a triple murder of three whites in 1966 in a bar. Reuben served 19 years in Trenton State Prison before a federal judge in Camden, Lee Sorokin, tossed the three convictions in 1985, ruling that the state's case rested upon, quote, racial stereotypes, fears, and prejudice, unquote, not facts. Carter carried a laminated copy of the case in his inside jacket pocket for the rest of his life, calling it his freedom papers. He had a sweet sense of humor and was inside and out a beautiful man. When I thought about that and I thought about raising the sun and I realized that I wouldn't want to integrate a neighborhood. <laughs> 
I don't want to have my children have to get dressed up to go out to say good morning and deserve to live among some other people. I want to be able to be free and take for granted that my neighbors like me and I like them. I didn't care about being integrated or accepted, and that was the one thing that bothered me about being in Raisin in the Sun. The Divine Ruby D. Her name was Ruby D. and though she has made her transition into the realm of the ancestors, She's available for all to see in all her beauty, dignity, charm, and poise for a long and distinguished career on stage, screen, and television. Despite such a long and legendary career as an actress, one would be hard-pressed to find a role where she portrayed anything less than the best of black people. Her best self shown, no matter the role, no matter the script. Like her late husband, the master actor, Ozzie Davis. Their work was a theater of black dignity, black family, and black love. Wadia Jamal loved them both. When I asked her why, she said, I love how they love. They found ways to practice their chosen craft, but never sold their souls to the cameraman or the director. Ruby D was also a lifelong activist who supported Malcolm X, the black freedom movement. And yes, yours truly. Were you um, totally shocked by his assassination, or, or, or did you thought that something like that was was likely to happen in in this country, which is so violent? None of us who were any place nearby what was going on could be surprised. It is possible to be shocked simply because of what it does to your own being to lose a friend and co-worker in that kind of way. But I certainly was not surprised in the sense that I didn't think it could happen because Martin, at least from 1965 on, and in different ways pre-1965, pre-1965 the thought was that some folks from the white racist community would do something like that in some unexpected spot or situation. Dr. Vincent Harding, a griot falls. In West African society, a griot holds a special, almost sacred place in the life of a nation. That's because he is one who holds in memory the history of the nation, its battles, its struggles, its kings and its counselors. He sings such tales of the nation's past and is thus a teacher. His life's memory is so precious that when he dies, he is not buried, but placed in the hollow of a tree to stand as the nation stands. A legendary historian and figure of history, Dr. Vincent Harding, has become an ancestor. In his youth, he was an assistant of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and he had so much clarity and influence that he wrote one of King's most controversial and groundbreaking speeches, the radical oration of Riverside Church, where King denounced capitalism, racism, and the war in Vietnam. Dr. Harding wrote, There is a river, the black struggle for freedom in America, a beautifully written work of a man who played a part in that struggle. His writing is so passionate that one could not help but be engaged in the flow of his narrative. He also wrote The Inconvenient Hero, a work on Dr. King which shows his struggles, his growth, 
and his betrayal by those who claim to be among his followers. Dr. Harding, when a young scholar activist helped found the Institute of the Black World, which published pamphlets, articles, and books on the struggles facing black people and the growing burgeoning black power movement. The IBW did a direct mail newsletter, Monthly Review, and a newspaper column called Black World Views, which discussed those ideas. With his wife, Rosemarie, Vincent left Chicago in 1960 to establish the Mennonite House in Atlanta, a place for rest, rejuvenation, and reflection on anti-war ideas during the early years of the anti-war movement. Reverend Dr. Vincent Harding was a griot telling the tales of the black nation. His instrument was his keen mind, his typewriter, and his books, written with the loving lyrics of black country gospel. He returns to the essence after 86 winters, but his sweet music of the history of black resistance continues to resonate. When a black radical dies in Mississippi, one should never accept at face value the state's word on the cause of death. When that revolutionary black man dies soon after becoming mayor of the state's capital and largest city, history and reason compel us to put assassination first on our list of possibilities. And if that black man has brought with him to Jackson, Mississippi, a band of fellow revolutionaries from around the state and the nation, united under the banner of Malcolm X for the purpose of totally upending the old order of race and class, not just in the Deep South, but across the planet, then it is imperative that impartial science tell us the exact, incontestable cause of this man's demise. Yet the Mississippi State Coroner has refused to perform an autopsy on the body of Chakwe Lumumba, who was elected by a landslide in June and died last Tuesday after checking into a hospital. The coroner says only that the mayor succumbed of natural causes, but the state of Mississippi and its minions have zero credibility when it comes to black life and death. Common sense tells us that the state is full of people who would love nothing better than to kill its most prominent radical, who was inviting other radicals of all races from around the country to a conference in May to discuss the nuts and bolts of social transformation from the ground up. The Jackson Rising Conference, which is still scheduled, is an invitation to a second reconstruction through participatory democracy and new cooperative economics. The event is meant to present a clear and present challenge to the rule of money and the hierarchy of race. Mississippi has murdered thousands of black people for far less reason than that. Mayor Lumumba's family and close friends sought an independent autopsy, and the National Council of Black Lawyers, of which Mayor Lumumba had been a member since his days in law school in Detroit, put out the call for funds. Akanyele Umoja, a close friend and longtime comrade in the Malcolm X grassroots movement, which Lumumba helped found in 1993, and who was also chairman of African American Studies at Georgia State University, says that even if Mississippi agreed to do an autopsy, there's no reason to believe their findings. 
We don't want to trust them to do it anyway, said Professor Amosia. Kenny Stokes, a black supervisor for the county surrounding Jackson, thinks the mayor was murdered, pure and simple. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, said the elected official. I believe that someone killed him, and a lot of other people feel he was killed. No matter what the independent autopsy concludes, Mississippi is guilty, has always been guilty, and will remain guilty until it's transformed by the kind of people's power that Chakwe Lumumba envisioned. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. I swallowed it whole on roots. Wasn't it nice? Wasn't it nice? Slavery was so cool, and all you had to do was wear derbies and vests and train chickens and buy your way free if you had a mind to? Must be the devil. It wasn't the white folks, them lazy niggas, chain they self and threw their own black asses in the bottom of the boat. Well, Amiri Baraka, poet on fire, 1934, 2014. The name Amiri Baraka has been known to me since my teens when I was a member of the Black Panther Party. His name was often linked with that of Dr. Maulana Karenga, credited with founding Kwanzaa celebrations of the L.A.-based US organization, which began as competition with the Black Panthers for influence in Black L.A. and devolved into a deadly feud between enemies, aided and abetted by the maliciousness of the FBI. But Barack opposed an intriguing figure, for he radiated both love and rage funneled through his poems, which pulsated with revolutionary fire. He was born in 1934 in Newark, New Jersey, as Everett Leroy Jones, and became a rising star of the Beat Era in the East Village, New York. When he joined the U.S. Air Force, he found a revelation in books while traveling in Chicago. He saw a bookstore with a green door called The Green Door, and within, he had an epiphany. In his 1984 biography, he wrote, Something dawned on me, like a big light bulb over my noggin. The comic strip idea lit up my mind at that moment as I stared at the books. I suddenly understood that I didn't know a hell of a lot about anything. What it was that seemed to move me then was that learning was important. I'd never thought that before. That moment spurred him to seriously read, study, and enlarge his understanding, not for a grade, but for the simple joy of learning. Baba Herman Ferguson, lifelong freedom fighter, presente. His name was Herman Ferguson, and if you're not dialed in to the black nationalist movement, the name may not ring a bell of recognition. But to those aware of the black power movement of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Herman Ferguson's life, role, and commitment rings like a bell in the night. For Ferguson, often accompanied by his wife and comrade, Ayolua Nahanda, joined black groups that supported the fight for freedom. He joined several, but perhaps few had more historical significance than his joining of both the groups formed by Malcolm X after his painful break from the Nation of Islam, the Organization of African American Unity and Muslim Mosque Incorporated. He met Malcolm in the late 50s when he was still in the nation and became a staunch supporter thereafter. In 1967, he and fellow members of the Jamaica Rifle and Pistol Club 
were arrested and charged with the planned assassination of two prominent civil rights leaders. After a conviction a year later, Ferguson fled the U.S., and he and his wife began a life in Guyana, working in the field of education. They stayed there over 19 years and lived good lives there. Ferguson could have retired with a government pension under his new name, Paul Adams, for he spent many years as an officer of the Guyanese Defense Force. But the call of home only got louder with time. Ferguson said he missed his family, his childhood friends, and the movement. His wife, Ayolua, said, I don't think people really understand the nature of exile. She explained, exile is death. So Herman Ferguson and his wife returned to the U.S., where he knew a jail cell awaited him. He did three years, got out, and went to work on behalf of other imprisoned activists by organizing, speaking out, and building support groups. For over 50 years, he fought for the same ideas and principles that Malcolm supported, black nationalism, popular self-defense, and black self-determination. Now, after 93 years of life, Baba Herman Ferguson has returned to the ancestors. When I grow up, I want to be just like Yuri Kochiyama. Comma, serve the people proper. When I grow up, I want to be just like Yuri Kochiyama. Yuri's struggle for freedom. Most of you have heard my comments on the passing of the great radical and revolutionary leader, Yuri Kochiyama. I had the distinct pleasure of meeting her when I was on death row. She was accompanied by Sister Pam Africa and the love and admiration between these two women made the room shimmer and shine like morning sunlight. I felt privileged to be in her presence, a living legend, and her support of the black revolutionary leader Malcolm X made it special indeed. Through her, I felt closer to him. Even at an advanced age, I could see Yuri's fire and sense her energy. Her life, her long life in the movement, was one of growth, development, and transition to deeper levels of struggle, to embrace finer levels of the struggle of the oppressed. But we should remember, she wasn't born into the movement. She was born into a middle-class neighborhood and community of mostly white people in San Pedro, where the Japanese neighbors were few and far between. In fact, Yuri would remember that at that time, in the 20s and 30s, she didn't notice racial or ethnic differences. Yuri said, to me, at that time, it didn't seem like anything unusual for Japanese to be living in a mostly white neighborhood. This was the mind of the young Yuri. This was Yuri, the Nisei, American-born and American-thinking. She remembered years later how many Nisei in San Pedro were ashamed of their Japanese-ness and shunned Japanese cultural expressions in the midst of whites. They tried to emulate their Americanness, but ultimately, of course, to no avail. For as Yuri would explain, Nisei, on the San Pedro side, did not seem as proud of or as aware of our heritage. But more so, it could also have been because we did not wish to emphasize our ethnicity in a society where a wee overdose of Japanese culture may have been thought to be foreign to the larger society. Somehow, I think we negated or denied our Japanese-ness to be on the safe side. 
I felt Americans liked us in San Pedro because we acted so American, exactly what Americans wanted us to be. We wanted so much to be accepted by America. This was even before the war. I'm glad there was a terminal island where the Japanese people were not afraid to express their Japanese pride. The words of Yuri Kochiyama. It's almost impossible to truly quantify what Marion Barry meant to the city. As a man, he was fallible, as the rest of us are, too. He never hid that. As a politician, he unabashedly tried to empower the black people of this city, and he never apologized for it. Yet, that fateful night at the Vista Hotel will absolutely be a large part of his legacy, as it should be. When you're videotaped by the FBI doing drugs, that will stick with you. Absurd racist stigmas associated with such an act put aside. But don't forget who Barry was in totality. He literally took a bullet in City Hall once. He gave many people their first jobs. He made senior citizens feel welcome in the city they grew old in. And for a certain generation of people, of which I am one, his ability to achieve a all the scandal was inspirational. He used to say that he wasn't perfect, but he was perfect for DC. I don't know if I believe that, but I do know that this city will never be the same without him. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. So, uh, Nada, we've been paying tribute to Maya Angelou yesterday's show. We started every hour with uh, some snippets of, of, of her work, and uh, the world is obviously, there's a, the different ways of looking at it. You could say the world is poorer because of her passing, or it's richer because of her contribution. Yeah, really, it's been a really time, but also really wonderful to see people reflecting on her life and uh, social media being such a wonderful place with the, all the, tweet, the tweets and quotes, the words being shared and everybody reminding uh, each other of their, fa- fa- their favorite quotes from her and their favorite. Uh, even President Barack Obama said her greatest stories were true. So uh, she died, unfortunately, on Wednesday at the age of 86. She had heart problems for some time, so her sweet piece and hopefully she does find it now in, in her passing. A woman called Maya, 1928-2014. Maya Angelou had to be the name of a poet. It is too perfect, too lyrical to fit any other personality. Born on April 4th, 1928, as Marguerite Johnson in St. Louis, Missouri, she blazed an incandescent streak across the heavens as a voice of memory as poet, actress, author, and activist. She taught generations of students as an honored professor of literature. As a young woman, she struck the boards as an African dancer. And she was a close friend and colleague of Malcolm X, working briefly as a leading member of his post-Nation of Islam grouping, the Organization of African American Unity. During the early 60s presidency of Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana attracted activists from around the world, especially black Americans. Maya Angelou would be among them, making West Africa her home. There she would meet Malcolm again, tanned dark by the African sun, goateed and fresh from his Hajj to Mecca, appearing at her door. The assassination of Malcolm X seemed to have marked a turning point in her life for it seemed like the work of crazy people, she said. She got a call while visiting a relative in San Francisco, and the news of Malcolm's fate numbed her into shock. Her brother appeared at the house unbidden and drove her away. As they walked the city's black district, then to Fillmore, the conversation was about Malcolm, but decidedly negative. He got what he deserved, said one. Serves him right, said another. Her brother turned to her and said, these are the people that man died for.
She would thereafter write, Mother, Teach, and Mentor. Her autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, a tale of childhood betrayal, vengeance, and death, would be joined by works of poetic wonder, light, and hope. Her majestic contralto would lend a presidential inauguration a nobility it did not deserve when she delivered on the pulse of the morning, reciting, History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. It seemed more fitting for her own extraordinary life. She is the mother of Guy Johnson, a brilliant novelist. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. its updated appearance in grooming regulations and it's drawing sharp criticism for rules many say unfairly target african-american women's hair now the regulations include rules on tattoos hairstyles grooming and uniforms however one of the rules which only applies to women is a ban on twists dreadlocks and multiple braids or cornrows that are bigger than a quarter of an inch an Army spokesperson told the Army Times newspaper the hairstyles have been barred since 2005, but the new regulations are now more specific. He argues they are, quote, necessary to maintain uniformity within a military population. But it's not sitting well with more than 7,000 soldiers who've now signed a White House petition calling on the president to order the Army to reconsider the regulations. Joining me now is a soldier who started the petition, Sergeant Jasmine Jacobs of the Georgia National Guard. Sergeant, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so 7,000 voices have joined you here. At the heart of this, you feel, is discrimination. Explain to me why you believe that this alienates African-American women specifically. Well, many of the changes in the new regulations of AR 670-1, which determine our uniform policy, they outlaw things that are frequented in the black um, female hair community, especially for natural females with natural hair, and that would be two-strand twists, which is the hairstyle that my hair is in currently, as well as dreadlocks, um, flat twist, and a variety of different things that are mostly worn by females of color. Obviously, your hair looks nice. It looks neat right now. It's quite lovely, by the way. But you wrote, Thank most you. black women, their hair does not grow straight down. It grows out. I'm disappointed okay. to see the Army, rather than inform themselves on how black people wear their hair, they've whitewashed it all. What was the reaction um, to that piece you wrote and how you articulated that you feel it's being whitewashed rather than an issue of education? Right. Um, I do. I said the word. I use the phrase whitewash to describe the fact that many of the hairstyles that are now authorized are hairstyles that are frequented by people with straight hair that have naturally straight hair, which are normally women that are not of color. And so, by whitewashing, I'm saying that our hair does not normally grow straight down, but 
like most people, hair might grow, it actually grows out or it grows curly or it grows kinky or coily naturally. So by telling us that many of the hairstyles that are allowed now are those that are typically worn straight, I feel like that was a racial bias. Chris, it was a long meeting, a very intense meeting, packed with community members at the center of it, the latest racial attack against math teacher Carolyn Gardner. But as the meeting wore on, became more so about the bigger question of how to make sure these racial attacks never happen again. I believe that those who see me as less than human, then I am at risk for more attacks. And who knows how that could end. An emotional Carolyn Gardner speaks out Tuesday after the third written racial attack against her was discovered at Amherst Regional High last week. Racism thrives in silence and it is thriving here. Gardner said after the first two incidents earlier this year, school administrators did not properly handle the attacks. The sluggish response of the school administrators leading up to this most recent attack is a sad indication to me that the need for racial consciousness and sensitivity is low on this administration's list of priorities. You know, I mean, I think that we're dealing with a, um, a significant level of racial anxiety. So what's so interesting to me about Theodore Wafer is uh, and the cop that killed Jonathan Farrell and George Zimmerman murder, murdering Trayvon Martin um, uh, and Michael Dunn murdering Jordan Davis is this anxiety about black people moving through public space, right? Or moving through uh, residential neighborhoods. There's the sense that they don't think we belong there. And so I am looking for the law to stop saying that white fear, right? And white property matters more than black life. I mean, that's sort of the classic drama that American, you know, history is staged on the, the sort of ultimate protection of white property uh, rights. And so um, Wafer comes out and kills this girl. And so it's as Attorney Crump said, right, which is that there is no sense that she is fearful. There is no sense that she needs help. There is no sense that uh, he could just be a good neighbor and say, I'm going to call the cops, get you the help you need, but it's late, so I'm going to close my door till they get here. That would have been a reasonable response. Um, and also, she doesn't have the protections that usually come for, like, if this were a young white woman, she would still be alive today. Like, he would have blown her head off, but the idea that we don't even see black women as women, so they don't get those traditional protections of femininity, right? So it just becomes, you're black, you're a threat, that's all that matters. And that's completely ridiculous. It was ridiculous when it happened to Trayvon. It was ridiculous when it happened to Jordan. It's ridiculous that it's happened to Renisha. And the question is, how much of this killing is our legal system going to allow before we start to have a different conversation about whether white fear rises to the level of legal defensibility over and above life. Yes, all, yes, women. all women. Good evening. The president of the Oklahoma NAACP is calling for the U.S. Attorney General to investigate the actions of an Oklahoma City police officer. Daniel Holdsclaw is now accused of sexually assaulting at least eight black women. The local NAACP wants the case investigated as a civil rights and hate crime. Heather Hope joins us tonight with the details. Carl, Oklahoma NAACP President Anthony Douglas says he wants an extra set of eyes on this case to see if the alleged victims were specifically targeted because of race. I'm calling for the Department of Justice to look into this case as a hate crime. In the weeks following the arrest of Oklahoma City Police Officer Daniel Holtzclaw, who was accused of rape while on duty, the Oklahoma NAACP president is asking for a federal investigation as all eight alleged victims were black women. We look at Northeast Oklahoma City, roughly 98% African American. We know all nationalities travel up and down Northeast Oklahoma City, but we're learning that because of 
the just only African-American women has been stopped and all these things have happened to, we wanted to look at it as a hate crime. Did, did he raise your profile only African-American women? In his letter to U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, Douglas applauds the Oklahoma City Police Department's efforts, but calls for additional agencies to investigate Holtzclaw, as well as any similar pattern of misconduct done by the department. We're not trying to make this about just African-American women. Women cannot be abused. We cannot take women for granted. But Douglas sent off the letter two weeks ago, and so far, no response. And I have not got a reply back from either office. But I sent it to our attorney general also, so it's no surprise that our senator Coder, the attorney general, is aware of the way we feel in Oklahoma. Douglas also plans to hold a series of town hall meetings next month to discuss the issue among others. And meanwhile, Holtzclaw bonded out of jail last week and is on house arrest and will be until he goes to trial. Heather Hope, News 9. All right, Heather, thank you. Holtzclaw faces several criminal charges, including sexual battery, indecent exposure, and rape. Yeah. 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 They gave us Obama like. On Sunday, Joanne Paris sat on the shore of Wolfboro Bay. On nearby Main Street, families lined up for ice cream, gazed in shop windows, and consulted maps and guidebooks. The summer tourist season has already begun, but it's been a rocky start. For the last few days, Wolfboro's been in the national spotlight over reports that one of its police commissioners, Robert Copeland, publicly used a racial slur to describe President Obama. The outside world, no Wolfboro for this, is it's tragic. On Monday morning, Robert Copeland sent an email to Police Commission Chairman Joseph Balboni simply saying, I resign. Copeland is 82 years old and was re-elected to a three-year term this past March. Under New Hampshire law, the police commission's duties include hiring, firing, and disciplining personnel, and setting their salaries. Reports that Copeland used the N-word to describe the president surfaced after resident Jane O'Toole reported overhearing him at a local restaurant last March. At a packed police commission meeting Thursday night, Copeland refused to apologize. Whitney White was there. She's one of only a handful of black residents in the predominantly white town. She grew up in Brooklyn, but went to high school here at Brewster Academy, and now works for the school. I wouldn't say that this is a racist place. Like, you know, like, I feel comfortable. If I didn't, I wouldn't have come back here. Um, these people become my family. I don't have, like, any blood or anyone here. But White says she closely watched Copeland at the meeting. His arms were folded. His He was looking at his watch. He was tilted back in his chair. His didn't even pay attention. He was doodling on a paper, and it's just like... You have these many people here talking to you. I'm asking you, are you going to apologize? Like, just do the right thing and resign. Like, so this won't affect the town like it's affecting it right now. And he can, the way it came off is like, he can care less. Uh, yeah, it was going to stop the fight. Uh, yeah, like it was going to stop the calls. Folks still stripping, trying to find them some socks and drawers. Yeah, uh, and something to eat. The IRS is coming, so I'm back on these beats. Barack push hope. Reagan push dope. Clinton push something down a young gal's throat. Yeah, and since we talking about ropes, white folks, what you know about ropes? Yeah, what you know about trees and men swinging from them that look like me? 17-year-old Lennon Lacey was hanging by his neck from a swing set. Local police say Lacey killed himself. But his family says suspicious circumstances have raised questions about whether Lacey's death was a suicide or a lynching. 
The federal government now says the FBI will conduct its own investigation. Here with the latest is Todd Frankel. He's been following the case in Bladenboro for the Washington Post. Todd, welcome to the State of Things. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, before we uh, get into the case itself, describe uh, the town of Bladenboro for us. Uh, it's a town of about uh, 1,800 people. Um, it's a tiny little place that, uh, like many small North Carolina towns, used to have a booming textile industry, a big cotton mill in town, and that is closed for decades. And it's struggling, but a proud little town. Describe the scene for us, will you, of Lennon Lacey's death? Sure, yeah. He was found, um, and this is one reason that the family uh, was given pause by the circumstances, uh, hanging from a playground wood swing set um, in the middle of a trailer park. There's 13 trailers that sort of um, form a rectangle around this playground area. And he was found there uh, about 7.30 that morning, uh, hanging from two belts um, in a pretty open area. And that's one thing that I think is giving a lot of people pause, that he was out in the open in such a way rather than someplace private. And uh, as you say, it's a trailer park, so it's not a public park, right? I mean, this was, in, in a sense, private property, this, uh, the trailer park? It's, it's private property, but you wouldn't know it was necessarily private property. The, the trailers are form a, a rectangle around the edge of it, and I, I guess you could, and I think I've talked to other neighborhood kids, they've, they've played on this, this series of swing sets that are lined up in between. But it is an unusual place, I would think, that if um, he lives about a quarter mile away in, uh, in a public housing community, um, and so there were other places. There's a, a dense patch of uh, forest um, nearby. Um, there's other places that perhaps you, you might have considered, I, you know, if, if it, this was, in fact, a suicide. All right. Well, what have police said about Lennon Lacey's death? <laughs> police publicly have said very little. Um, most of this uh, and most of the controversy has stemmed from the state medical examiner and the local coroner's uh, finding that this was a suicide. Um, they performed an autopsy. They performed a, a fairly – the State Bureau of Investigation was also involved early on um, and, and fairly quickly. Although the investigation officially remains open, um, there was a finding of uh, – at least an initial finding of suicide. And as only as pressure is built in the, in the last couple of weeks that they've emphasized that this remains open and they have not made a formal conclusion about what happened. All right. Well, why does why does his family have doubts about the suicide? There's a, a series of, frankly, strange circumstances surrounding his death. Um, the, the biggest thing I think that gives uh, people pause is that he was found wearing a pair of white tennis shoes without laces that his family said he didn't own. Uh, a pair of uh, Air Jordans that he did own are missing. Um, and the, one of the belts, uh, his family said they, they don't recognize as being one of his belts. So the question was, you know, where did where did these items come from? Uh, he had, the day before he died, uh, he buried his great uncle um, and attended that funeral, and he was uh, upset by that. But his, his mother said that he was not depressed, um, and, and the police in their uh, medical examiner report noted that he called him depressed, and so there was some confusion there. And so there, the question is. Um, Additionally, he was also uh, had recently broken up with uh, an older white woman that he was dating. Um, she was 31, mother of two children. And so all these things come together to raise the doubt of what exactly did happen uh, that night when he, when he died. When you say one of the belts, in fact, he was hanging from two belts that were, uh, that were held together. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, they were canvas belts. Um, and, and one of them was looped around his neck. And I mean, not to get too graphic, but uh, the different mechanical ways that you could reach up to on the playground set in order to hang yourself and, you know, the different 
people have different theories about whether this was possible or not possible. But yeah, there were two belts involved uh, tied together to form a very long noose. One of them, the family doesn't recognize the shoes. Am I right? The shoes, not only they don't recognize as his, but they were fairly too small, weren't they? Yeah, they based that on photographs that they said they were too small. But yes, they, the family has said that um, he had size 12 uh, size feet, and these shoes uh, were actually 10, 10 and a half. So it just didn't make any sense. And, and you know, talking to the local coroner, he himself said that this did not make any sense. And adding more intrigue to this whole thing is that the shoes, for whatever reason, did not make their way with the body to the state examiner's autopsy. Um, so it's not exactly clear what happened to the shoes. So, again, all these things sort of come together to raise significant doubt for a lot of people in the town. We need that perfect hair. Where exactly are you, man? What's going on? I want to be a cop. Still developing at this hour, we're waiting to get more details from state agents about two Fruitland Park police officers accused of being members of the Ku Klux Klan. You saw at 4 o'clock, these two officers are off the job because of these alleged ties. At 5, you heard a review will be done to make sure this did not affect how they handle cases. New this hour, Channel 9's Anthony DiLorenzo spoke to the police chief about how he's making changes to avoid any more problems like this. With three former officers here in Fruitland Park linked to the KKK, the chief tells us he is working to make sure that no officer ever disgraces this department again. An FBI investigation uncovered these career cops were also local Klansmen. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. I was sick to my stomach. It is probably the most... Uh, egregious thing that I have ever read, read in my career, 29 years of being in this police department. Baton Rouge Police Chief Carl Dabity is talking about this string of racist text messages that were allegedly sent by a police officer in his department. The messages were racist against African Americans, where police officer Michael Ellsbury allegedly called them monkeys, said he enjoyed arresting thugs with saggy pants, and wished a Ferguson would happen here. And to see something like that uh, almost erase everything that we've been working for was, was gut-wrenching. Dabity says all officers are required to take sensitivity training, and this is something that shows more of that needs to be done. It's why he's forcing all officers to take additional classes beginning next year. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. Darren Manning still needs the help of a wheelchair. The straight-A sophomore at Mathematics, Civics, and Sciences Charter School says he suffered serious injuries during a recent arrest by Philadelphia police. And I was just in a, in a lot of pain. Manning was with a group of teammates walking to an afternoon basketball game when police stopped him near 15th and Girard on January 7th. He says he doesn't know why they were stopped. I didn't deserve to be wrongly stopped, and not, not, they didn't tell me what I did. Moments later, the boy with zero discipline problems in school was being arrested for aggravated assault and resisting arrest. And while he was in handcuffs, he claims a female police officer grabbed his testicles and squeezed. I had the cuffs on, 
and she patted me down and that's when I felt her grab and squeeze and then she pulled down and I, I yelled out. Manning spent eight hours in jail and while police say he never reported any injuries, he did spend the next night in Children's Hospital. Hospital records show he had emergency surgery on his genitals. His doctors say he may never be able to father children. Yeah. I want to be a cop. Can you keep your lips sealed? I think with leadership skills can turn low-level offenders into crisp bills. You know, I've always wanted to be a cop. When the uniform fit, well, calmly it seems. Being in niggas, call the greens, and they discuss the politics and dreams. That's why I've always wanted to be a cop. So I can criminalize the gate in your stroll, the shade in your mold, and take a toll. I just play start face as safe as an ace in a hole for a cop. As good as I, a book a guy for drinking crooked eye. Don't resist a pudding pie, you thick I won't, but why wouldn't I? I'm a cop. To other news now, major developments in that police chase and deadly shooting that put parts of Capitol Hill on lockdown last October. The U.S. Attorney's Office announced that no charges will be filed against the officers involved in the shooting death of Miriam Carey. Tom Rousey joins us now from Capitol Hill with a closer look at this investigation. Tom? And Allison, a number of new photographs as well as a lot of new information released today. This all started a couple blocks behind me at a White House checkpoint. It went for 14 more blocks. Kerry led police on a chase all the way down near the Capitol there. And then it continued a couple other blocks from there before she was shot and killed. I can understand the fear that the police may have had. I don't believe that they're not going to be held responsible for their actions. Differing opinions on Capitol Hill tonight over the decision not to charge any officers. These pictures released today show the White House checkpoint where this all began. The U.S. Attorney's Office says first one officer, then another tries to stop Carrie. The second officer is knocked to the side by her car. The U.S. Attorney says Carrie, with her one-year-old girl in the car, then drove east on Pennsylvania, going as fast as 80 at Garfield Circle, a news photographer shot Carrie's efforts to avoid police. Secret Service and Capitol officers fired eight shots, but it doesn't appear any hit Carrie. Everything would end seven minutes after it began at 2nd and Maryland near the Supreme Court. Carrie jumps a curb, hits an unmarked police car. Then the U.S. attorney says Carrie reversed toward an officer, and he and another officer fired 18 shots. Five hit Carrie, one was fatal. They made a decision. They made a difficult decision. Uh, if I were in that situation and I'm afraid of something, I don't know what's going on, all this has been happening in the world, I can't say that I would not have done the same thing. They have to feel that they're in imminent danger, so maybe they felt that way, but just from the footage and everything that I saw from the video, it didn't seem that she was a threat to them. I am a cop. Cause everything you do was actionable intel. Given any say search words, wind sales, step in the jail. When well, finally a cop, you'll be dining for show in PDA and a PDF. And the PBNJ, so but the TV set chemically discourages your graffiti sketch. I'm a cop. WNYC's Robert Lewis has been examining the officer's arrest record and found him to be the embodiment of the department's controversial approach to policing. I was washing clothes with my father and my girlfriend. Donovan Taylor is standing outside a laundromat on Forest Avenue in Staten Island, next door to a dollar store and an abandoned gas station. Two years ago, he watched from inside as plainclothes cops held his father against the window and searched him. Taylor was 17 at the time. He ran outside and asked what was going on. One second, an officer was ordering him to stand back. The next, he was swarmed by four cops. I'm scared. That's what happened. I was scared. 
Yeah, I'm not trying to fight back. It's too many, though. It was busting his head like this on the floor, just banging it. That's his girlfriend, Shaquasia Albright. She was pregnant at the time, screaming at the cops to leave him alone. Y'all just doing this stuff because he was standing there asking what's going on? That's messed up. The arresting officer was Daniel Pantaleo, the guy who applied a chokehold to Eric Garner while arresting him for selling loose cigarettes in July. There was widespread outrage after a cell phone video emerged of that fatal encounter. I'm minding my business. Please just leave me alone. But you're a cop. You can torment freely and see me valley, then seize an Audi, then beam proudly. Turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale when you're a cop. You can shoot the motherfucker by the trailer park. Plenty evidence should have been truly razor sharp. Then turn around and taste a perp for a blazing perp. I'm a cop. Yeah. Help fire. Monica Timmons is among the 60 or so protesters who came out to demand that the Ferguson police identify the officer involved in the shooting. They want him charged with murder. I don't have kids, and this is why. I do not want to be scared to have a son in America. Like, ain't you scared to have one? You know, like, let's be real. You know, what do our sons got to look forward to? You want to bring a son to this so he can get killed? No. Slaying niggas praying for forgiveness from the white Jesus that they going to. Damn. Damn. Being a black man in America isn't easy. Hunt is on. You're the prey. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, survive. Let's start with Eric Holder's announcement today in Ohio. His Justice Department has been unusually aggressive in investigating police wrongdoing. What are the findings from the cases in Cleveland? Melissa. So when you say too much force, what the Justice Department means is shootings of people who are unarmed and actually physically hitting people with weapons in violation of the Fourth Amendment. But it didn't involve just guns in Cleveland. Also, the overuse of tasers and sprays that were deployed against people who didn't pose a threat to public safety, the Justice Department says. Here's how Attorney General Eric Holder described the investigation. We can take a listen. The Justice Department has closely examined nearly 600 use-of-force incidents that occurred between 2010 and 2013, including the incidents involving the use of lethal and less-than-lethal force. So zeroing in on a couple of examples here out of that 600, of that pool of 600 cases, a famous 2012 incident where Cleveland police fired off 137 rounds in a high-speed car chase. Mm. Both people in the car died. They were unarmed. They never fired at police. The car backfired, and the cops thought, uh, mistakenly thought, that was uh, gunfire. And in another incident, a helicopter camera caught police kicking an unarmed man who was on the ground. He was already handcuffed. In some cases, Cleveland police opened fire on people who were running away and posed no threat. In one case, the Justice Department said a Cleveland police officer punched a hand cuffed 13-year-old boy in the face repeatedly. And another police used a taser on a man who was strapped to a gurney and experiencing seizures because he was making verbal threats. In another case that got a lot of attention just over a week ago when police in Cleveland 
shot and killed a 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, who had a pellet gun. More than 100 people packed a church in Cleveland, Ohio, for the memorial service of Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old African-American boy shot dead by police last month. Rice, who was in sixth grade, was killed after a 911 caller reported seeing the boy with a gun, which the caller repeatedly said seemed fake. Video shows Cleveland police officer Timothy Lohman fatally shooting Rice immediately after leaving his cruiser from a distance of about 10 feet. Now, reports have emerged Officer Lohman was deemed unfit for police service two years ago when he worked in the suburb of Independence. A letter from a superior specifically criticizes Lohman's performance and firearms training, saying, quote, he could not follow simple directions, could not communicate clear thoughts nor recollections, he said. And he said his performance was dismal. Since protests began, chants of no justice, no peace have been mixed with much more violent anti-police messages. They fire more tear gas, we shoot choppers. F the police, More dangerous than mere shouts, police say, is facing the gunshots, Molotov cocktails, rocks, bottles of urine, even spit. As a member of the tactical team, St. Louis County police officer Sean McGuire was out on the lines since the day Michael Brown was shot. McGuire says he knows that many protesters are peaceful and police need to protect them and their rights. But he says police are still exposed to hostile agitators mixed in the crowds. Warning, this is a little graphic. I was on the line and a state patrol officer was told by a protester that he is going to find his wife He's going to hogtie the officer and he's going to rape his wife while he watches. Another protester told me that he's going to steal my gun and shoot my kids with it. And then you hear social media, you hear local news, you hear national news of, of why aren't they wearing their name tags? Well, they're making threats against our family. Missouri State Highway Patrol Captain Ron Johnson, who was in charge of the Unified Police Command Center in Ferguson, says officers are feeling the impact of these kinds of remarks. I have been out there and, and, and seen white officers leave in tears because of some of the things that have been said to them, not in fear, just because that's not who they are. You, you think I'm a racist? And I don't think you're a racist. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I think you... you Evil heart. I don't think so. I think you have an amazing heart, honey. I think the people around you have poisoned mind and have a way of thinking. It's the world. You go to Israel. The blacks are just treated like dogs. So do you have the, to treat them like that too? The white Jews, there's white Jews or black Jews. Do you understand? And are the black Jews less than the white Jews? 100%, 50, 100 And is that right? It is a question. We don't evaluate what's right and wrong. We live in a society. We, we live, live in a in culture. culture. V. Stiviano was leaving a restaurant at the Gansevoort Hotel in the Meatpacking District when she claims two men punched her in the head and called out racial slurs. Nigga, nigga, now police nigga. say one of those men has been tracked down and charged with a hate crime. I'm not a racist. I made a terrible, terrible mistake. And I'm here with you today to apologize and to ask for forgiveness for all the people that I've hurt. And I've hurt so many people, so many innocent people. And I've hurt myself. You know, 
I spoke to a girl that I was fond of, and I don't know why I could never, when I listened to that tape, I don't even know how I could say words like that. I'm not a racist. I love people. I always have. But those words came out of my mouth, I guess. And I'm so sorry. And I'm so apologetic. What are you sorry about? Well, I'm sorry that so many people are hurt. My little grandchild goes to a Catholic nursery, and they were passing around candy to everybody when they got to her. They said, we don't give candy to racists. Seven and nine. So it hurts me. Uh, but first, he is a basketball legend, now contributing columnist to Time Magazine and the writer-producer of the award-winning documentary On the Shoulders of Giants. I should also mention <laughs> the all-time NBA scoring leader, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, is over here. The big man in the middle. Kareem, how are you? Great to meet you. Look at that. Yes, we know who it is, sir. Thank you. It's, it's Kareem. We, we didn't think it was Muggsy Bogues. I've seen you on TV this week before. You're so eloquent on this issue, so I want to get to some questions. Maybe they haven't asked you. Maybe they have. First of all, I want to ask you, do you, you cut any slack to somebody who's 80 and a racist? You hear this a lot, that, well, he's old. Same thing you hear about, you know, well, our founding fathers. You know, that was the era they lived in. Do, do you think that's a, a, an excuse, or we should stop using that as an excuse? I don't think we can use that as an excuse. Um, these 80 years include the 1936 Olympics. <laughs> right. Joe, Joe Lewis versus Smelling. Jackie, Jackie Robinson. Robinson. Right. Uh, the integration of the NBA. And, and the Army. And the Army. Uh, and the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech. The, uh, the, right. uh, the Supreme Court decision. Sure. Uh, you know, he's had a lot of time to get used to the had, fad of... Yeah. <laughs> Over his lifetime, he's seen uh, change, and the NBA has been awesome with change. Uh, my very first year, I played for the Milwaukee Bucks. They hired the very first African-American general mm -hmm. manager. That was in 1969. And the NBA has done things of that nature for minorities uh, all along the way, opening doors and, and making the NBA more inclusive. And what about, uh, what about historically? I mean, you were a demon on the court, demon on the demon. court, and on the court. In his testimony, Officer Wilson described Michael during the altercation as, like I had said earlier, looking like a demon. And he uh, was asked about it in an interview. Listen to this. And why do you choose the word demon? I don't really know what was going on. As my, that, I was so shocked by the whole interaction because this was escalated so quickly from a simple request to now a fight for survival. And it still doesn't make sense to me why someone would act in that way and be so mad instantly, so aggressive instantly. Demon on the court, but I know you're a very scholarly guy. What do you think about the founding fathers and when they say, well, that was his era? I, 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 can't, I can't buy that. Alexander Hamilton did not... Uh, feel that uh, slavery was, was viable. He told Washington... And Franklin, right. During the war, free the slaves. They'll uh, deal with the manpower shortage. We'll whip the British in, sh in short order. The British did it before we did. Right. 
But you know, Lincoln had some harsh words about the black people. Yes, he did, but I, I, you have to say Lincoln evolved. You know, 1858, he had some harsh things to say. By the time the, the middle of the war had come around, he realized what needed to be done. So you have to give him uh, his credit for evolving quickly and understanding what really was at stake. Okay, let me ask you about the NAACP. Now, they took money from Don Sterling. They were about to give him a Lifetime Achievement Award. A second one. A second one. <laughs> um, I, w I would guess that if they were here, what their answer would be is, look, um, we got a lot of money from this guy. Money that actually helped people in their real lives. You buy that as an excuse? Uh, I don't know if, if I can. Um, plus, there's some questions about the gentleman who uh, had this right. cozy arrangement. He quit with today, yeah. Yeah, he, he resigned. So people don't resign when, they, when people are happy about what they've done. That's, that's how that usually works out. Is it too much to say they were whorish? Uh, I, I think um, sometimes you, you, you take what's, what's there. You know, if they, they were having a tough year raising funds, they, they might have felt that, uh, hey, we'll make a little deal with the devil here. Right. And speaking of whorish, this girl... Um, uh, <laughs> You know, she says um, that, you know, there was not a, a sexual relationship or any sort of romantic relationship, and yet she took four cars in a, an expensive apartment. I feel that makes her worse than a whore. A whore, that's an honest transaction. <laughs> I don't know enough about it to, to right. speculate. But, okay. <laughs> okay. But... But you probably do know about this. I mean, I, I feel like some of this is obviously just regular racism, and some of it is something that is so old and such a big part of racism, which is the black guy is going to steal our women. I feel like that's what was going on in his head. Jay Cole, everybody. A federal judge has approved a $41 million settlement for the so-called Central Park Five, who were wrongfully convicted in the rape of a jogger 25 years ago. WNYC's Jessica Gould reports. The conviction of black and Hispanic teenagers in the rape of a white investment banker became a flashpoint for issues of race, class, and violence in late 80s New York City. But those themes took on new meaning in 2002, when evidence connected someone else to the attack and their convictions were overturned. Since then, critics have accused police officers of misconduct for tactics that elicited false confessions. Mayor de Blasio promised to settle the lawsuit, which his predecessor, Mayor Bloomberg, had fought. De Blasio called the settlement an act of justice long overdue. But the city's top lawyer, Zachary Carter, defended the police, saying the settlement is not an acknowledgment of misconduct in the case. For WNYC, I'm Jessica Gould. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. Yeah. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. Yeah. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. 
there are a lot of people that in many cases don't think that you've been aggressive enough mm -hmm. in talking about the numbers of African-American men right. that are overwhelmingly shot versus white men. Yeah. Are, there, are there ever times when the responsibilities and obligations of president get in the way of how you want to respond as a human? Well, you know, sometimes uh, people's concerns are not based on fact because if you look at after what happened with Michael Brown, if you looked at what happened after Trayvon, if you look at uh, the decision after Eric Garner, uh, I'm being pretty explicit about my concern uh, and being pretty explicit about the fact that this is a systemic problem, that black folks and Latinos and others are not just making this up. Uh, I describe it in very personal terms. Um, I think what sometimes people are frustrated by is me not simply saying, this is what the outcome should have been. And that I cannot do institutionally. Uh, it is my Justice Department that is investigating these cases. And part of the rule of law is that I'm not putting my fingers my thumb on the scale of justice. And it could compromise investigations if it appeared that I was trying to steer to a particular outcome. So uh, I'm sure that there's some folks who just want me to say, in such and such a case, this is what I think uh, should have happened. And if I had been on a grand jury, this is what I would have said, and it, <laughs> so forth and so on. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll leave it to people to speculate on uh, what I'm saying to myself or Michelle uh, uh, when we're alone at night. Um, but, but, but what I can say is that uh, this country is at its best when everybody is being treated fairly. Mm -hmm. We have a history and a legacy of people not being treated fairly in all kinds of walks of life. It is particularly important for people to feel like they're being treated fairly by law enforcement and police because the consequences when they're not treated fairly uh, can be deadly. Uh, and, you know, I've said it before, the vast majority of law enforcement officers are doing a really tough job and most of them are doing it well and are trying to do the right thing. But a combination of bad training in some cases a combination in some cases of departments that really are not trying to root out biases uh, or tolerate sloppy police work, uh, a combination in some cases of folks just not knowing any better, and in a lot of cases, subconscious fear of folks who look different. All of this contributes to uh, a, a national problem that's going to require a national solution. And uh, you know, what I told the young people who, who I met with, uh, and you know, we're going to have more conversations like this over, over the coming months, is this isn't going to be solved overnight. This is something that is deeply rooted in our society. It's deeply rooted in our history. But the two things that are going to allow us to solve it, number one, is the understanding that we have made progress. And so it's important to recognize as, as painful as these incidents are, we can't equate what is happening now to what was happening 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you talk to your parents, grandparents, uncles, they'll, they'll tell you that uh, you know, things are uh, better.
Yeah. Forget this chain, cause this ain't me. Though I'm eternally grateful to Jay-Z. We're so elated, we celebrated like Obama waited until his last day in office to tell the nation brothers is getting their reparations. Hey, a man can drink, can he? No disrespect in terms of change, I haven't seen any. Maybe he had good intentions, but was stifled by the system and was sad to learn he actually couldn't bring any. That's what I get for thinking. This world is fair. They let a brother steer the ship and never told him that the ship was sinking. But I got other to think about, like my bank account. Forget that watch, you paid too much for it. You ought to be ashamed when brothers back home be dreaded when the seasons change. Because they ain't got no heat and they ain't got no AC. Walmart distribution fire, my homie, he just had a baby. You wonder why it's been so many B&Es lately While brothers from the hood shooting like this is TNT lately This is all the ballers leaving college early I turn on the TV and don't see no brothers with degrees lately Are we all alone? Fighting on our own Please give me a chance I don't wanna dance Something's got me down I will stand my ground Don't just stand around Don't just stand around All we want to do is be free All we want to do is be free All we want to do is take the chains off How you doing? Oh my God, hi Jay Oh my God, oh my God You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? How long since you've been there? Not since the riot started. That was three nights ago, man. Yeah, I know. Catnap when I can. When did the National Guard come in? Late last night. All white. I noticed. Yeah, the people didn't dig it when they woke up this morning and uh, found the troops were here. What do you think they'll do? I can't see them trying to fight the army. They didn't mind fighting the police? Yeah. I've never seen him like that. Maybe that badge has put distance between you and them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot. The pigs over here and the people over there. And never the twain shall meet, huh? Hey, man, I grew up down here, too. And I know these people. Now, there were some good people out there in the streets the last few nights. Not just hoodlums, like they say in the newspapers. In a scene like this, anybody can get involved. But that's only going to make it worse. We have to maintain law and order, or we might as well be back in the jungles. <laughs> Does the ghetto is a jungle? Always has been. Understand? You cannot cage people like animals and not expect them to fight back someday. It has always been an army occupation here, with police badges and uniforms. Huh? You and me, a cop and a social worker, we are keepers of this goddamn zoo. The streets have to be safe. Safe for who? You're here to protect property, not lives. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You worked hard to get what you got, didn't you? And you want to keep it just like I do? Bullshit. Listen, you think because you got a badge and I got a couple of degrees, that makes a difference? Do you know what white folks call people like you and me in private? Niggas, dogs. Niggas. I, I called you a nigger. You're a nigger. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast. Hopefully, 
to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Depending on where you happen to be in the world, uh, either this is Thursday, excuse me, Wednesday, jumping ahead of myself, uh, Wednesday, January 1st, 2014, or, oh, it's Thursday, sorry, I'm all confused with the days, I'll try one more time. Depending on where you are, either it is Thursday, January 1st, 2015, or it is still Wednesday, December 31st, 2014, I am on Pacific Standard Time, so it is still 2014 uh, out here. Uh, hopefully, folks uh, remained safe and codified. Um, I know uh, it's customary to be out uh, consuming alcohol and all that stuff, having fun. Uh, if you're going to do that, I would stay still be codified. Uh, Sean Bell, Oscar Grant. I think the uh, they have the six year uh anniversary they're having a program uh in uh, remembrance of oscar grant this week uh but there are too many instances uh where black people were were attempting to celebrate have a good time and racism white supremacy intrudes remain codified (laughs) i I take the position we have nothing to celebrate as hopefully that audio clip uh evidenced at any rate uh folks have things they want to touch on We'll hit the phone line. You can share uh, thoughts, anything you heard in the uh, news clips uh, or any other reflections on 2014. Uh, Ebola should have been in there. I didn't have uh, time. I didn't want to make it super, super long, but Ebola definitely should have been in there. Uh, Bill Cosby did not get mentioned. Uh, Elliot Roger. I definitely wanted to have the interview that uh, Barbara Walter did with uh, Elliot Rogers uh, father. Uh, where he talked explicitly about him being jealous because he wasn't white. I uh, thought that was important as well. The Ray Rice uh, situation that also there probably were a myriad of other things, uh, maybe even the interview uh, controversy at the end of the year. But uh, it's a lot of things. One thing that I will say. Just reflecting on some of the black people, I mean, it's always thousands of of people, period, that die, and it's always thousands, hundreds of thousands of black people that die every year. But uh, just reflecting on some of the black people who transitioned uh, this year, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Maya Angelou and uh, Mayor Marion Barry, uh, Mayor Chokwe Lumumba, uh, Amiri Baraka, Ruby Dee. Vincent Harding, Herman Ferguson, Sam Greenlee. That was the final clip uh, that you heard. That was from the spook who sat by the door. That that conversation had so much more meaning based on what has transpired this year. I felt like that could have been taken right out of some of the exchanges that I heard people having about Ferguson. But that was from the spook who sat by the door, Sam Greenlee. Uh, transition as well as as well as Reuben Hurricane Carter. Uh, there were a lot of people. And I'm sure there were others, um, you know, just scratching the surface. Um, but I had said all year, like, wow, that's a lot of people who just studying their lives like uh, that was a, a significant chunk was kind of recognizing those folks. And uh, that I think is hugely important. I think the more you know, it really makes it obviously tacky when 
whites start coming in and saying that Ellen DeGeneres is the gay Rosa Parks. And uh, I think before they had said that Edward Snowden was like a modern day Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman. Like when people make those kind of remarks, they will not only just feel and sound repugnant, but you will realize the magnitude of the false equivalent when people make those kind of uh, statements that, oh, my gosh, you are just being incredibly tacky and racist. That's what's happening. Um, But at any rate, just reflecting like you could study learn uh so much about racism white supremacy just from studying some of those people's lives and writings many of them you know wrote a word or two about their experience under racism white supremacy you could learn a lot uh, i felt like that came out just hearing uh mumia and some of the other folks uh pay tribute to some of the black people uh non-white people on the whole who uh transitioned during 2014 um, white victims. That was definitely one of the, the main themes. I'm not going to uh, chat it up for a long time either. I'm about to hit the phone lines, but white, white people playing the victim. That was huge. Uh, I think I could have included more, but oh man, I, I even, even within that, the NYPD with the recent shooting, you heard some of that with the folks in Ferguson, where they were saying that folks were telling them they were going to shoot their children and all this. And this explains why we're violating policy and not wearing uh, name tags and that sort of thing. Uh, just rife throughout. Donald Sterling is crying. My granddaughter, they no candy for racists. Um, I mean, just it was rife throughout even the beginning of the year when Melissa Harris Perry had to give that tearful apology because they had made jokes about uh, Mitt Romney and his adopted black grandchild. Uh, It was just rife uh, throughout the year. White people playing the victim. That's why I have up the photo image for this broadcast is uh, Donald Sterling, where they had on the front page of the CNN uh, back in May. Isn't Donald Sterling a victim too? They have been phenomenal with that this year. They do that all the time, but that that really stood out as a major theme uh, for the course of 2014. Uh, if you have reflections on the past year, news clips, things that were not in the news clips, just patterns, things that really stood out that you thought were important, or maybe even a lesson, something that you learned uh, with regards to racism, white supremacy, or just something of constructive value for you, uh, definitely share. The number to dial is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to hop on. That number again seven six zero. Five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to hop on. Uh, we were a little late getting started. Uh, the audio clip took a really long time to upload for some reason, so I was twiddling my thumbs uh, as I waited. But that uh, delayed things getting rolling. Uh, we will. Uh, look to do better. Hopefully that will not be a a issue moving forward, but that was what slowed us down a little bit. Uh, Quickly, uh, just a couple quick things that did stand out that I wanted to make sure I included as well. Um, That clip on the military regulations where they were restricting black females, particularly black females with natural hair. 
Uh, I think at one point it was a black female that was being interviewed and she said uh, that this policy or no, 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 it was the white person. It was the white person conducting the interview. And they said, how does this policy alienate African-American women? And just that word right there, I think yesterday where I was suggesting not using the term uh, this is offensive because it's not like, you know, I'm a child and you just hurt my feelings. No, it's you are uh, practicing incorrect unjust behavior. That's what it is. You are doing something that's incorrect. Not that I'm just a little hurt child and I'm about to cry because you hurt my, that's not what we're talking about at all. Uh, same thing, alienate. No, <laughs> I did not feel quote unquote alienated. Uh, I feel like this policy is not just, uh, and that it unjustly incorrectly punishes black people, melanin rich humans who have naturally curly hair. It's punishing us for not chemically mutilating our hair to be straight to imitate white people. That's being act, not alienate, like not at all. And even that suggesting somehow our dehumanization, maybe you're not a person, you're, you know, ET or predator or something we need to go and shoot and kill. Um, but I thought that was important as well, as well as in that within that same segment, the black female, the victim that was being interviewed, uh, she said that these policies uh, impact people, females of color. And that was one of those where I thought we should be specific. This does not apply to Asian females. This is something that is specifically targeting black females. We should say that explicitly. That's one of the ways that we can definitely work against racism, white supremacy, in my view, to be explicit and clear about racism, white supremacy. Uh, in my view, you heard yesterday what they want. They want Timothy Wise, where we get 20 minutes of someone talking and then half of the audience is still not even sure if the question was answered. You don't want, we don't want that. We want clarity, accuracy, clarity, accuracy that is maximum counter racist effort uh hitting the phone lines for anyone who wanted to chip in thoughts views commentary uh lines should be open uh, everyone with a hand up uh same uh, format i reckon uh where if you have something you want to share feel free chime in uh and then make sure everybody speaks before you offer your uh, second or third uh commentary uh everybody with a hand up line should be open Go ahead, sir. Uh, yes, it's my first time calling in. Uh, this is Ronan, and I definitely uh, enjoy the uh, this broadcast. Uh, is uh, not only is informative, but it's necessary. Uh, and uh, in listening to the uh, the ongoing uh, tape and everything like that, I was really reflecting on everything that happened. Uh, throughout 2014 and even beyond, and uh, having served as a prior service Marine, uh, a lot of memories came back. Uh, I didn't think they would go to the extent of like uh, changing the regulations for black women's hair, but they did have uh, situations where um, there was a lot of uh, racism, white supremacy. Uh, it was believed that uh, black people had an extra bone in their calves to jump higher. That's what I was told. Um, 
there was a lot of questionable acts that went on in the military is why I left. But uh, while everyone's in a celebratory mood, and I'm not here to sound, sound somber, it's just like uh, as soon as they hit midnight, I was my mind was thinking about not just tuning into this uh, broadcast, but uh, realizing there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I wasn't in the mood to, you know, sip champagne and soft shoe and dance and, you know, those dreamers as uh, they've been killing us wholesale. And knowing that and, you know, any time they could pull our number as far as with that uh, lethal white supremacist lottery, um, we had to make use of this time. And it's, it's about not just, you know, supporting black media, but black businesses, period, because it's a matter of survival. Um, I mean, I'll celebrate when things are a lot a lot more progressive uh, for us. But right now, um, there's just too much at stake. I think about my nieces and nephews, even uh, the kids that, you know, the parents who might be listening to this broadcast. You know, they're, they're part of my responsibility as well. So, um, what I want to tell everybody, it's like... Uh, this is the time to use your gifts. This is the time to uh, use everything that you've been given and support your own because uh, we don't have that many allies, if at all. And uh, we have a lot to celebrate uh, as far as with our history and as far as, you know, everything that these culture vultures want to pillage from us. And first they mimic it. I mean, they, they mock it, but then they... They, they can't do anything other than try to keep up with what we're doing. Um, but it's time we got to stand up. This this is no time to tap dance. It just isn't. Um, that's just how I feel about it. And uh, thank you for letting me speak on that. Right on. Uh, other folks uh, who have a hand up, if you uh, would like to chime in, feel free. Evening, Shani. Uh, the other folks who have a hand up, line should be open. Get really good at the thoughts. All right, on. I uh, thought I heard a female caller as well. Yeah. Oh, hi. Uh, um, happy New Year. Um, I think one thing to notice is um, the, uh, you know, with the attack on us is uh, the um, public uh, execution of Tamir Rice and just the targeting of uh, the black child in this, uh, you know, all-out attack on us. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course, Stingley should have been mentioned uh, this year as well. Like, uh, I didn't know who he was at all until uh, last week. One of uh, one of my Twitter followers uh, told me he was going to be on Democracy Now! Uh, and so I uh, watched it, and I was going to play it last week. I had a lot. can't play everything. Um, but he uh, was talking about Dontre Hamilton, and that was another black person that was shot, killed, uh, and they did not prosecute or even indict. This was in Wisconsin this year. I think they're protesting about that right now. And uh, within the context of that, he mentioned, he said that another mistake, because it was apparently the same white prosecutor who chose not to indict the officer who killed uh, Dontre Hamilton, also chose not to indict uh, Corey Stingley, uh, this 16-year-old black male. He was shoplifting uh, in Wisconsin. He got caught. He put all of the items that he had taken back and these random white citizens, not enforcement officers, random white citizens proceeded to beat him to death. Nobody was charged. Uh, that happened this year too. And I would take the over that, uh, probably 80% of the people listening to this program, uh, never heard of Corey Stingley. Cause I never, nobody, I don't think sent me anything uh, about that. I didn't see it. Uh, I didn't know about that at all. Just, uh, to further dramatize with all of the things that happened this year. Uh, and we get to the end of 2014. It's like, Oh yeah, such as, Oh yeah. So it's like, I mean, it would be an infinite list of black people that have been killed and or maimed, raped, brutalized throughout the year. It would just be endless. I mean, it's really scratching the surface. Just like, you know, you were saying with Tamir Rice, Jonathan Crawford, Marlene Pinnock, the people that got a lot of attention, but I mean, it's like, exponential uh, the number of black people that are just suffering and being abused under this system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the, and the reason why it's specifically mentioned to me arises because he, he, he's actually a child. Now I know, you know, like a 16 year old, I guess you could consider that person being a child, but he was, not even a teenager, you know, and so that's what makes his case very unique, and to me that highlights how, you know, the racists want to now focus on those who are actually children well under the, you know, not even in their teen years, and how they're targeting them to be killed now as well. Is it someone else's time? Uh, your line is open. Feel free. Oh, okay. Okay. Greetings. Uh, yeah. Um, I uh, received a uh, text message from uh, a uh, uh, friend uh, that uh, stated the common the common uh, phrase, uh, Happy New Year, uh, which gave me thought to the phrase. So I uh, text the person back and responded by saying, greetings and good health. What would truly make a second minute our day, 
week, month, and year new and happy is when we neutralize the system of white supremacy and replace it with a system of justice. Uh, was my uh, response to uh, the common phrase, Happy New Year. Uh, just a thought. Uh, but uh, if uh, to, to make a uh, Dr. Welsing moment, uh, to copy her, I, I would say if I had a magic wand, uh, that uh, it would be that uh, more non-white people who are victims of racist white supremacy would develop an understanding or work towards, as I say that, work, work, make effort to work towards uh, having a uh, better understanding of the system of racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works. Uh, that would be uh, great that that would take place. As I mentioned before, Harriet Tubman said, uh, I guess over 100 years ago now, that uh, in her uh, analysis on this similar subject, uh, that uh, I would have brought more victims uh, out of that uh, hostile environment if uh, they understood that they were being mistreated. And I would say in this day and age, uh, if I had a magic wand, more and more of us would uh, develop an understanding that uh, we're living in a system of racist white supremacy. That's my take for right now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Happy New Year, guys. It's <laughs> Klondike Mike speaking. Yippers. Um, I thought I'd just call in. And, uh, well, I don't know. I just, I always have plenty of anecdotes because uh, I, uh, seem to be around a lot of racist people <laughs> often. Um, but uh, I was living... Uh, this is, anyways, I'll just tell you about this. Um, it kind of relates to um, uh, the uh, white victimization thing. And, um, and uh, there obviously being a huge campaign to, uh, to just um, you know, convince white people that they are genuine victims of oppression, you know, systemic oppression, uh, or maybe not to convince, but to, uh, encourage their all, you know, their pathological, uh, uh, yeah, ways. But, um, but I have a, or I had a roommate cause I recently moved. Um, I had a roommate and, uh, he's a, he's a, a big, um, uh, white man 
uh, he's like 30 something years old. Uh, he's like an ex trucker and he lives in our basement and collects EI and he considers himself a writer. And, uh, and, um, he's a funny guy. His name's Barry. And, um, I was just thinking back to some of the, uh, things he said to me and my other, uh, black roommates. Cause, uh, at one point there were, you know, uh, three, uh, black roommates and often many non-white roommates. Um, but, um, I don't know. Uh, Barry considers himself a scientist and an ecologist. And uh, he would often hear me and my friends talking about politics or talking about racism. And um, and he would come and interject. And uh, he's not someone I really like to talk to about anything because I just didn't really trust him and I didn't really think it was worth my time. But um, <clears throat> he, used to con- he used to tell us about how, um, you know, how he was oppressed because he's a scientist and uh, an environmentalist, and he was telling us about how he would constantly tell us about how we were wrong and we've got it all wrong because uh, because it's about uh, class and the corporations and everything and uh, and uh, and uh, the real people who are being oppressed nowadays are the the ec- ecologists and the uh, scientists and um, sorry I feel like this, <laughs> this story is going nowhere but. Nobody else is really talking, so I'm here. Um, <laughs> but then um, I'll, I'll just say a few more things quick. And I don't know. Um, he uh, he seemed really concerned about uh, the way we viewed the world. And um, there's some funny things he said. He once told um, my uh, black roommate uh, um, that uh, uh, black people get uh, that uh, black people get better dental care because we have we have a, a higher contrast between our white teeth and our black skin so um <laughs> so uh so um we would automatically get better dental care and i guess that was just part of his uh his victimization um his like uh, his thinking of being victimization yeah anyways sorry i realize this story's not really going anywhere um but uh uh, I just uh, thought of that randomly and uh, thought I'd share. <laughs> Hello, are, are you in Canada? Uh, Klondike Mike, Hello? are you still there? We can hear you, ma'am. Klondike Mike, are you still with us? Hello? Yes, yes, I'm here. I think that question was for you. Hey, uh, you have a question? I didn't hear it. Sorry. Yeah, uh, are you in Canada? I think I heard you on another uh, uh, program with the cows, and I think you said, or maybe I'm getting you confused with someone else. No, that's that's me. I'm I'm in Canada, or there's other Canadian guests, but I'm in Canada. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have any questions about uh, Canada and racism in Canada? No, I. In a way, yeah, I, I remember one time, I think, um, I don't know if it was Gus or someone had mentioned that the shootings of blacks are about the same as they rate, same rate as they are in the U.S., or, but I don't know where in Canada you are, and if you could you shed some light on that. Um, well, I guess 
Um, I, I guess uh, I don't actually really know the statistics, um, but I know that um, I, I went to a, a protest for uh, Mike Brown, and it's funny, it was <laughs> the same one where there was a guest on recently. Uh, she was a female guest who had organized the protest, and I was, I was at that protest, and, um, and uh, we were all, also uh, protesting. Um, there was also another uh, a non-white black male victim um, of a police shooting in Toronto around that exact same time, and he was uh, someone we were uh, protesting for as well. Although I, his name, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, I, uh, it's funny, I, I tend to uh, just... Um, Jermaine Carby. Up. There we go. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. If you uh, have a hand up, uh, your line should be open. Any of the other folks that uh, more dialed in more recently with the hand up, your line should be open also. Yes, sir. Call me as greetings to uh, Gus and um, everyone that's uh, calling in and the listeners. Um, I, I noticed um, from the, the segment, I, I guess they were talking about uh, Mr. Copeland, the, um, the guy who they made sure they said what his age was. I think like they said he was in his 80s. And the, um, the female, I guess that might have been a non-white person. He was like describing his um, his uh, demeanor, you know, like he didn't really care, you know. He was taking notes and he didn't really seem too all that concerned. And I I remember seeing the video of um, the the white guy, you know. I think he might have been just trying to clown. And uh, I think the <laughs> the suspected racist. Um, I think Robert Copeland, he called him a skunk or something like that. And, you know, just listening to that segment, the female said, uh, well, you know, we just want you, or I just want you to apologize. You know, like, I guess he's trying to come off maybe just trying to maybe beg for an apology or something like that. That's how it kind of seemed. But, you know, uh, she may be a victim, so, you know, uh, VGQ. But, um, yeah, you know, that's, that's just, it goes to show you, you know, how he used that language to refer to uh, President Obama, and he didn't seem like he was, you know, trying to regret it. If anything, it should have been like, well, you know, how many how many more of them you got in you? How many more, um, you know, what they call M-bombs or nigger words you got left? Because he looked like, on that video, he had a whole bunch of them left. I mean, and then see, and then they can't even stick on the um, Donald Sterling, you know, Clive and Bundy, old folk, because see, you got that uh, that kid. I think that this happened last year where um, Kim got Kim Kardashian, and that I think it was a white kid. He was, uh, I guess, he was calling her a nigger or something like that, a nigger lover or something. And I guess supposedly 
immediately Kanye, um, I guess, came to the premises and, I guess, beat up the white kid or whatever. You know, that was, I'm thinking that was a, a young kid, too. And the actor Sean Penn, they got, I think, TMZ got him on tape, too, calling the black male a nigger. Um, and Justin Bieber, you know, young, another, another um, young person. I mean, you know, they're on full force with it, too. And uh, I think the three-fifths, that was another slur that came about. I mean, so, you know, just got to make sure that it's in all of the different age ranges, like not just, you know, 70s or 80s. That's, see, that's how um, the media reporting, they can kind of spin the narrative to make you think that it's just, you know, people who are, what they will say from that era, whatever that means. But see, it's, it's you know, younger folks doing it too, younger white folks doing it too. You know, dressing up in um, monkey costumes and painting their faces, having these parties, like, like they know, they know full and well what they're doing. It's well thought out, strategic, you know, um, being a white person, basically, you know, being on a white team. So, um, you know, you're going on one of those college campuses, for instance, that is what you're going to be dealing with. And uh, I'll just pass it on to the next person. Uh, that that clip, that's one of the things that I uh, do enjoy about um, doing the annual kind of review, end of the year review. Um, just being able to kind of go back and look at some of the things that happened um, that, you know, it happened maybe in April or February and you've forgotten about it. But that incident where the uh, police commissioner, I mean, with all the talk about the police, right, that people have been doing the last four months or so of the year. It is amazing to go back and hear some of the reports that were coming in during the first six months of the year uh, that are the exact same problem that, you know, people didn't connect or people just forgot about it or whatever. But that right there, where the police commissioner is calling President Obama a nigger. And I, ha- I had the clip that uh, the mail caller was just referencing where um, he's given an interview where you can hear this white guy and he calls the white reporter a skunk. Um <laughs> that as well because i mean the whole thing is just hilarious but um i played that one specifically because they made it sound so serious (laughs) like this is this is just the most incredible unbelievable thing (laughs) like it was so sinister uh just the tone of it um that they conveyed and uh that uh, they made to me the tone of it was these white people have been victimized by this one old 80 year old racist guy. Like it's just him. The rest of us white people, we are not racist like this guy and we are being victimized. Like you're messing it up for the whole town and people don't want to come here. And Oh, this is just ghastly. The way we've been, I, I felt like even the victim that they got to speak in that segment where she was saying, you know, why don't you just 
you know, apologize and that way you won't mess it up for the whole town. And he didn't even, and I mean, you can see that. You can see the video of him sitting during the meeting and he's just like, you know, <laughs> whatever for that nigga in the White House and any of you niggas here that don't. I mean, that's just totally his tone throughout all of this. But uh, I, I had forgotten about that. I had forgotten about that white woman who uh, had her fit and became a YouTube thing earlier in the year where she kept calling the guy nigger and she was going to throw her coffee on him where she lied and said that he, he was going to hit their children, even though he was in a parked vehicle. He just turned the engine on. I had forgotten about that too. It was uh, lots of little things like that. Can uh, <laughs> have some, have some clarity to really grasp what's, what's happening here on a constant basis. And again, just check the newspaper. It's always, Racism is always there, directly, indirectly. Uh, but that was Robert Copeland, again, his name, who, uh, <laughs> great, great segment from earlier in the year. And was it, um, was 2014 the year that uh, the FBI put Sada Shakur on the most wanted list, or the first female, or, or something to that effect? Was that the year? Uh, that was last year that they put her on the list, last uh, May. Oh, okay. I only asked that because I found it ironic that the uh, gentleman that defended her and who ultimately became mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chukwu Gamunga, passed away. And I found that ironic. And, you know, the, the, those incidents weren't that far apart. Everyone else who has a hand up, your line should be open if you have uh, comments that you want to get in as well. Also, if uh, the person who was saying that they uh, (laughs) went, I guess they kept listening to Crystal Tyler's programs and started kind of thinking, oh, she's not so bad. She might be a cool white person, too. Man, this chick is racist and I hate her. Like if uh, that person is hanging out, uh, I had a, a question if they're hanging out. I don't know, you know. You might uh, might not be here, but if so, uh, I had a question. But everybody else who had a hand up, your line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to everyone here today. Um, I just have a question for anyone who wants to answer. Uh, this is a, I guess, a feeling that I had. Um, I found myself, I was so displeased with the public display of pleasure black people got out of saying Happy New Year as people left the plantation at the end of the day of work. And I'm wondering if, as I become more informed about racism, white supremacy, does anyone else find um, themselves being displeased with the... um, Could you speak a little louder, sir? Does anyone else seem to feel displeased with the activity that they see that goes on in the workplace when they become more and more uh, informed about racism, white Yes. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That, that's without question. It's very unsettling to see. Uh, it it, it kind of reflects of people having a very distinct short-term memory. Like, you know, we recently had Ferguson, and now people are talking about Happy New Year. And it wasn't that long ago. And after that, it was a series of individuals being taken out. And you've seen a lot of individuals getting away with it, like just getting killed wholesale. Uh, I mean, that's why it's kind of very difficult to really take these text messages I keep getting seriously. It's like, Happy New Year. It's like, I remember everything, even when, you know, Jordan Davis, you know, he, he way back in Oscar Grant, you know, all, I mean, further back. And it seems like every year one has this thing, if it's not, if someone gets killed, they're, they're worried about Black Friday. Or uh, I, I guess it's kind of a white supremacist timeout that they believe or saying like uh, all life matters but all what, I'm, all what I'm seeing or what we're seeing is uh, people like us get taken out like this quick uh, you got the NYPD and other uh, units basically throwing a temper tantrum because of them being called out on their foolishness not just on the local stage but international so it is kind of unsettling when people are out there doing car wheels and getting drunk. I'm like, these cops are out here right now looking for the next one. And that's just being honest. Um, basically, uh, uh, under the system of racist white supremacy is something that I expect because non-white people are going to be as a result of the system of racist white supremacy confused so they're going to uh, behave in, in a particular type of manner uh, so I, I don't get surprised about it uh, so uh, and at the same time uh, so I don't get in conflict I will wait for that person to bring that confused matter to to my attention, such as, as I mentioned about uh, 15 years ago, uh, I was uh, approached with uh, Happy New Year. And uh, so I decided to uh, give a response to it, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but, uh, yes, that is a and it's a real uh, thought that the uh, caller brought up in question. Uh, just, you know, uh, either just keep moving <laughs> or if, if it's brought to your attention directly, uh, think about some sort of codified response if you deem, uh, deem necessary uh, with... Uh, you know, whatever it is, it, it can be uh, New Year, Christmas, Thanksgiving, or uh, some other uh, uh, pathology that we have uh, picked up from our uh, 
races, uh, 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 I thought I said buddies, but <laughs> from the races. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I find myself being more and more displeased in the workplace. It's like it's a big elephant in the room of racism, white activities going on on the planet, and people are talking about the window treatment, things they want to decorate in the office. And I'm thinking, this is... Insane. Yeah, that's true. It, but it's it's not it's not new. Uh, unfortunately, we have used as a strategy to ignore racism, and with the idea in mind, it will go away. Uh, think about something more happier, quote unquote. You know that sort of thing. So, uh, I just think, from my reasoning, on, on, uh, for attempting attempting to. Uh, practice counter-racism, that uh, it should be expected. You're going to have that type of response from a lot of non-white victims. So that that keeps me from uh, being discouraged, I put it that way. I think that's huge as well. Like, that's, uh, that's something that you should not be surprised about. If you have a, a firmer understanding of racism, white supremacy, like as was just stated, that should be expected. That is one of the primary products of white supremacy is to have the victims in a state where they are not even uh, willing to truthfully acknowledge racism, white supremacy, and particularly on the jobs like that should just be. Uh, expected, and I even was reminded uh, they were there was a segment with uh, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, Brittany Cooper. They're both black people, uh, but they were talking about Renisha McBride, uh, the trial that was this year, and they got to a point where they were talking about it's almost as though it's explicitly codified in law that as long as you're killing a black person, like that is a totally justified act. Uh, they were saying that that's that's pretty much the type of, of law that we have under this system. And Mark Lamont Hill, I think he said, I'm paraphrasing, but I think the gist of it was he said that 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 seems to be true. And that is the scarier conversation to have. I think that's the way that he phrased it. Uh, and I played this on the program earlier this year, but I thought like, wow, I should have included I included a portion from that conversation where you heard Brittany Cooper, where she was talking about how uh, black females are just not afforded the status of being a female, even a human being. And that's how you end up with Renisha McBride's and then Daniel Holtzclaw going out and raping a whole town of black females. But um, I think just understanding that that white people have. I mean, this is terrorism. I say that all the time. This is terrorism. That's one of the results of terrorism. You have people that are responding out of fear. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to upset white people. I think Dr. Uh, Joy DeGroote talked about that, where sometimes you'll be out in public and you'll be talking about racism or trying to. And the person's voice will drop real low if they're going to say white people. That is a response to terrorism. So I just I think that's one of the things um, that we should really try to watch out for as you become less confused. Uh, in not 
looking at black people who have not gotten access to this information or not at a point where they can be open and honest about it, not looking at them like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. I mean, that's that's pretty common. That's what the system is designed to produce, like and not uh, really working to just expect that and to not, you know, have that be something that causes us a lot of frustration because you we should be working to understand why that is and what can be done to try to change that. So it's safe to say that quite a few of us suffer from ethnic amnesia. Truth be told. Go ahead, sir. Truth be told, I used to put up Christmas stuff myself at one time. (laughs) That's another thing that uh, people who have uh, learned to attempt to at least practice some sort of codification, uh, counter-racist codification, is that uh, at one time we weren't uh, as unconfused as we are, as we claim we are now. And just about everything that I may have a complaint about and what I see, I was doing it in a confused state uh, also at one point in time. And I, and, and I, and I, I train myself not to forget that because the bottom line is you don't want to present a, a, uh, negative picture to another victim of racism and white supremacy. Can we heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm listening to you guys. I wanted to, got a question. I was trying to figure out if you think a lot of the victims are just confused about the system of racism and white supremacy or they can be in a state of denial because I just say this past year is a lot of evidence of, you know, the terrorism going on, the codification of the refined statement that, you know, the white supremacists make, you know, apologize and making themselves the victim. And another one fellow said, you know, with the past year and then here you got people leaving the plantation and saying Happy New Year. Uh, just do you do anybody think it's just a stage of denial? I know there are five stages of denial that, that you know, that's out there, you know, the first stage is denial, the second is anger, uh, the third is bargaining, and I think that's something a lot of the victims may do is bargaining because they think they're good white people out there, you know, with the land down, and, you know, that's, you know, some people just walk around, oh, look at us, we're human, you know, please don't hurt us, that's that's the bargaining I see probably in the denial stage, and, you know, just become depressed, and they just, a lot of people just come to accept that hey, they're just going to keep practicing racism and white supremacy. There's nothing we can do about it. And then they go about their way. That's why you see a lot of people who leave the plantation and say, well, you know, it's been a bad year, but happy new year anyway. And they just come to accept it. So just do some of you guys think it's denial or is that they're just confused about it? Because I think being confused is one thing, but I know it's clear and evident what's happening to us on a, on a day-to-day basis. And you just think it's denial. I would say both. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. I would say both too because of what I found is that 
even those people that I sometimes have conversation with and they appear to me that they um, understand racism, white supremacy, but I still find that they go to great lengths to make excuses for white people who demean black people. And when they start to go into that area, I'm thinking to myself as I listen to them talk that although there's a glimmer of understanding, there's still that hope that there's good white people who will come in to rescue us. Yeah. Hello. I agree. Uh, yes, ma'am. We can hear you as well. Oh, oh okay. Um, and I think also we, you know, for most of our lives growing up in America, we hear that common refrain of, you know, this is a democracy and everyone's equal and, you know, there's the Constitution, everyone has constitutional rights. And, um, of course, we bought into that illusion. So, because I know when I was confused, I, I literally thought that we were all equal and, and then, of course, when I would experience, you know, acts of racism, especially out in public, I, I, would, I was then, you know, just confused, like, well, why am I being treated this way? And, of course, with, you know, Dr. Frances Cresswell thing and her, her book, and, you know, she, she then explains all that. And then, then when, after I read her book, then I realized, oh, okay, now I see. And then... Of course, learning uh, about this show, listening to the show, and then learning about other figures. Uh, like, for example, I've been listening to uh, Alternatics on some of the other programs, and he, he even had said at one point that blacks are really constitutional squatters. We, we, we don't have any constitutional rights. So, yeah, we, we bought into that illusion that we truly are equal as so-called American citizens, and, and we're not. Because we're not, you know, obviously we're not treated that way by whites. So that's my take on that. Oh, real quick as well. I'd heard someone say that um, I guess they were not pleased that more artists weren't talking about some of the current events, racism specifically. Um, all of the music that you heard in the sound clip is stuff that came out this year uh, from a variety of folks. Uh, I think all of that was directly addressing racism. And I think everything uh, came out within the last six months. A lot of that was Ferguson uh, motivated. And there are others. Um, there are quite a few um, folks who have, um, <clears throat> including uh, 50 Cent and, you know, some bigger name folks, T.I. as well. Uh, and then a lot of other folks that people might not have heard of, but there is quite a bit of music um, that is reflective of the major problem on the planet. Have you heard? Yes, we can hear you. How you doing, Tom Smith from New York? Oh, greetings. Good to hear from you, sir. How are you? Um, well, I, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say Happy New Year, because I'm happy 2014 is over, because um, white people are definitely on their job. I mean, they did a great job in 2014. And um, 
to the what the other guy said. Um, I think being less confused, I I, I enjoy going to work more knowing than it was when I was confused. I mean, I feel bad for the people that that's confused. You know, I mean, I'm, I just sometimes shake my head at them, like okay, and keep it moving. You know, so um, um, that's pretty much what I had to add. I just wanted to say I will. For 2015, I expect things to get worse. And um, hopefully this, the event will happen that deprograms everyone and um, they figure it out. But um, um, I, I think that we need to shift the focus from, because um, I just looked at the um, final, saw the New York Times just um, released an article in the last few hours um New York crime rate the lowest ever, and but the cops aren't happy, something like that. And I'm reading it, and um, in it it also says, you know, how low Chicago's was too. And um, they made a lot of focus early in the year how bad Chicago was, and they ended up with less murders than last year. So, I, well, the heavy policing has nothing to do with the crime. You know, it's, it's we we need to shift the I think in focus. It has nothing to do with crime. The crime is pretty much non-existent as it was before. And um, that's all I wanted to add. Gus, do you know the race of the uh, women that were shot in the Idaho Walmart? Mm, no. Is that the one that happened like this past week? Uh, where it was I think it was a white guy, or it might have been two, where they went in and they were shooting. Was this more recent? No, the two-year-old son shot the mom. By oh, I think that uh, that was a white, yeah, <laughs> cynical African had that on the site. That was a white woman, white child, white woman. Yeah, yeah this um, the Daniel Horseclaw uh, case reminds me of the, uh, that book at the dark end of the street. That talks about uh, rape in the uh, civil rights era and a lot of uh, sexual abuse and physical violence against black women by police officers. How do you used to like kidnap them and take them to places and rape them and abuse them? It's, it's like the, the, the clips that you're playing just seems very similar and reminds me so much of that time. And that was. 50 years ago or so, the uh, Lacey Lennon case with the uh, white women abusing young black men. Um, that again reminds me of that same book that's in that book too. The same idea of black men wanting white women and black women being whores and Jezebel as uh, Bill Maher, that's his name, Bill yes. Maher. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, just everything seems so familiar. Nothing has changed. And uh, that's what I have to say. For sure. Danielle McGuire, that's at the dark end of the street, the uh, author, uh, racist suspect. She has been on the program. Uh, if you go back to September of 2011, she was a guest on the program. But uh, she does have a lot of great uh, info in the book, uh, Area 8 area eight and i did want to get in on bill mark uh, real quick too um hearing i hadn't heard that clip where he had kareem abdul jabbar on to talk about donald sterling i hadn't heard that in like 
six, seven months. So hearing it again, uh, and I think we called out at the time when I played it, uh, people had commented and saying, oh, wow, he called him a demon. It had a whole different resonance uh, given, you know, what happened at the end of the year uh, around that term. But you know, I think that's important because that's the way white people think about us, <laughs> like all the time. And everybody, it doesn't matter if you have suspenders and a belt on. It doesn't matter. You can have a three-piece suit on. You can have a PhD. You can be a Hall of Fame basketball player. You can have millions of dollars. It doesn't matter. We still think of you as a demon nigger that should be castrated, raped, killed, anything we can think of, certainly not treated like a human being. But I thought that was so important. And everything about what he said, like I was so glad to hear someone said that's at least one good sign that they're seeing is that they're bumping into more black people who just are saying Bill Maher is racist. That guy is racist. Uh, Everything that he said, like going from calling Kareem Abdul-Jabbar a demon uh, to V. Stiviano is a whore to the NAACP is a whore. I mean, it's just demeaning black people, demeaning non-white people the whole way through the sexual element as well. And it's time I could have went through and had my pick where he referenced uh, Michael Brown as a thug later on in the year. Uh, it's just it's there all the time. If you just uh, are paying to it and, and understand just to get a better understanding of white people, the racism and the contempt, utter total contempt for black people is always, always present. You just got to know what you're looking for. And I'll mute my line. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. So um, I wanted to talk, uh, sort of pick up on that. The last gentleman who has said that he's happy that he came into this understanding that he's less confused. Um, I feel the same way mostly because, um, well, for a lot of reasons, but definitely because Previously to me coming to a little bit of this understanding, I would take that and internalize it and make myself feel bad about, like, why do they hate me? Why do they hate me? And since I started reading um, Yorugu and a couple of other books, I started to understand that this is their pathology. And this is just the way they think us versus them. No matter who it is, it's always going to be us versus them. And I'm really grateful for um, the cows, and I just wanted to thank all the listeners and also to thank you. And I'm going to mute my line. Great read. Reading is more important than watching television. Yurugu, Dr. Marimba Ani. Outstanding. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I also believe that 2015 is going to get worse because I, I strongly believe that white people have no intention on helping black people develop to their full potential in any uh, people activity, and they have no uh, intentions of solving black people's problems of racism, white supremacy. One of the areas that I think they're going to amp up their game is, is in the activity of white people engaging in sexual activity with uh, black people and having children because those offsprings also will be supportive of racism, white supremacy activity, and those offsprings, I think, a lot of times are confused. And so I think that's an area that white people are going to amp up their game 
especially when I have observed television commercials, things in the TV, there's always these white people with black children, and I'm seeing more of that in the media. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. First, well, this is Liz calling out of California, and I want to say that I totally agree with the last caller. Um, I wanted to, well, I'm sorry. Okay. So I recently went back to work after being on a six-week maternity leave, and um, I'm in the Navy, by the way. And about a week before I went back to work, uh, one of my supervisors emailed me the new instruction on hair. And I actually have dreads. I've had dreads for about a year and a half now. And um, when I went back to work, he told me, this is a a non-white black male, he told me that uh, one of the other supervisors who was white was uncomfortable telling me himself. So I noticed that a lot lately. Um, especially with the white, uh, black people feeling like it's, since they're a lot of the interracial relationships, uh, it's, I I think it confuses non-white people and makes them feel like, uh, I don't even know how to, how to say this, but anyway, um, so the same white guy, I'm sitting next to him and he is telling me stories about his kids and he adopts kids, and um, he was talking about the three of them and how they interact, and then he wanted to tell me about two of them, and now two of them are non-white children, very young. I think one was like one, and one the other was three, and the way he describes them is totally different from the way he describes a little white girl, and he always makes it a point to tell me how well the black kids are doing, and I'm not sure why he tells me these things, because I'm pretty sure I don't come off like somebody you want to talk to at work. And mm-hmm. uh, another thing is uh, a lot of the white females in there have black uh, husbands or um, fathers of their children or whatever the case, and I feel like uh, I didn't know what it was for white women to seek uh, black female validation until I heard the uh, Crystal Tyler show. And that, that was a big eye-opener for me. Uh, another thing, last story I'm going to tell, uh, my husband is also in the military, and recently, and I mean this was like a week ago, uh, there were some non-white males rapping to some music with an N-word in it. And I guess it was pretty loud. And one of the white supervisors went up to my husband, pulled him to the side, and told him to go tell the other non-white males to keep it down on the N-word. Like, uh, they felt uncomfortable about it, and they didn't want to go up the chain of command and get them in trouble. And I just think stuff like that's a little odd, how they seem to use non-white people against each other. And I just... That's something that I recently started to notice, and I think it is really something to look out for. But that is all. Speaking, speaking of, of uh, the uh, white supremacists uh, using the uh, strategy of deception to have uh, non-white people 
uh, using them against against using using other black people. Uh, my, I have a thought with with the uh, with the hair regulations on jobs because it came up before I retired, and I think would would give the uh, white uh, supremacist a strategy if due to the anti-blackness, which is a learned behavior from the results of system racist white supremacy, uh, with uh, non-white black people uh, who don't wear their hair in natural styles, uh, it gives it makes it it makes them more I think more comfortable in stepping up the uh, ranch ranch ranching up the uh, the uh, the, the policies on to either restrict or in some cases may even try to eliminate uh, the advent of, of uh, non-white people wearing their hair in more natural styles. Uh, that, that came up on, on the job that I was on with the fire department, and there were some comments that was uh, brought out by uh, other victims uh, that... Uh, Basically, had a made it made their opinion about uh, uh, natural hair, saying it, you know, saying something negative about it, that sort of thing. And once again, I I I I put the focus on the white supremacists because they understand of our confused state, and as the last caller was was alluding to, they would use they would use the comments from a more confused non-white person. To ranch up what they really want want to do, anyway. Uh, so that that's a that's a very shrewd, uh, deceptive strategy that I see the races do uh, on a lot of subjects. On a lot of subjects. But do you think that's an old strategy? Because um, if you look oh, at yes. the, oh, yes. the Caribbean yes. and Brazil, it's something that's always happened everywhere else. But America traditionally hasn't really pushed that agenda. Now is, and it's been so effective in almost every other place that it's, it seems like an old strategy that's just revisiting yes, coming to America. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. I would I would submit uh, Tuskegee, uh, so the syphilis study that was done at a HBCU, mm-hmm. historically black college university, mm-hmm. uh, Tuskegee University, mm-hmm. uh, as an example that that strategy has been in effect worldwide, including the U.S. for a very very long time. Mm-hmm. And I also think that's the reason why the interracial push is happening. I think we're going to see it a lot more in 2015. It's because it's been so successful in pacifying the Afro-Latinas, the, the Afro-Brazilians, um, and, and speaking out, even though they're the majority in a lot of their countries, it's it's completely like they they don't want to identify as being black at all, um, and I I think that's why the agenda for interracial relationship has has kicked up here. That's my personal view. One thing I did forget, or I didn't forget, I just couldn't play everything. Uh, Melissa Harris Perry, uh, she did well. That right there, she has a white parent and a non-white parent. 
Uh, but Melissa Harris Perry, uh, the one time that she did get in a lot of trouble uh, this year where she had to come on and apologize and was in tears. Uh, that was when, as I said, she made that comment about Mitt Romney's adopted grandson. That to me was crucially important. Uh, I cannot think of any other time where she said to come on and give an apology and people were saying that she should be fired. And I mean, it was huge. Uh, that's how 2014 started for her. That was the very first thing that she did on her show was uh, give this tearful apology. And it wasn't just to Mitt Romney's family. It was to every white person who has adopted, abducted a non-white child. She wanted to thank them and let them know that there was nothing wrong with that and that she totally supported it. And, oh, yeah, I have a white mom. And I think it's great when white people trans racially adopt that right there. The fact that, in my opinion, racists made her do that. Um, that to me, let me know how important that is for white people to continue stealing, uh, non-white children, uh, that that is an integral strategy to the system of white supremacy and probably plays into what people were talking about, the, uh, racist using other non-white people against us to help maintain their system. But I thought that right there revealed a lot. And we've had, uh, quite a few, uh, programs, uh, Kevin Fisher Paulson, the white gay man, who is a sheriff in San Francisco County who adopted uh, two non-white children. We had him on to talk about the situation in Ferguson and, and all that. That is crucial uh, in terms of them maintaining the system. And I'll mute my line. Happy hurt. Yes, sir. Um, one, of the, one of the things I want to point out is the uh, interracial uh, dating. I remember we had a conversation about this before about, uh, well, Dr. Francis Cress Wilson talked about black self respect. And I think that kind of ties into also, too, in, in, in the interracial dating. Same thing like Clarence Thomas, you know, you have some of the darker skinned uh, individuals who may have been talked about or ostracized because they're darker skinned. So they want to feel more accepted. So they get with someone else who's lighter and they have an offspring thinking that their lighter skinned kid will, you know, will be better off or, or be more accepted by the whites. So even the young lady says that she's in the Navy and was talking about her hairstyle. I still think if a lot of black uh, people just decide on, on, a, on a large scale to stop, well, just to wear their natural hair, females and males, I think that will that's like a, 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 a silent revolution. You know, I think that'd be like a, a revolution, just saying a statement to the, the white dominant people saying, Hey, I'm not going to bow down and say, I'm going to, you know, cream my hair or press my hair just to feel accepted by you and to de deny my, deny my own, uh, true existence or something like that. So I think if, if people, were to wear their natural hair, even in the workplace or just throughout. You don't have to just have, you know, wild afro, but it still could be, tank, uh, you know, trimmed up, everything like that. But just not bowing down and say, hey, I need to come into your establishment. I'm going to change who I am just to be accepted uh, in, in, into the workplace. May I be heard? I can hear you. Um, 
I kind of want to go back on something that I noticed this kind of taps on to what Gus was just talking about is that um, I live here in California, and I there's a chain of restaurants called Wendy's. I don't know if they're in all states, but there's billboard campaigns at Wendy's that are pushing adoptions, and they have billboards with white people adopting, abducting black people and are pushing this campaign. And to see these billboards with white people adopting, abducting black people is another form of them amping up their racism, white supremacy strategies. And I, then I also have a question that maybe Gus or anyone else can answer is, I hear it mentioned in this um, uh, group a lot, uh, non-white black people. Can someone provide me with some clarity as to why they say that in just, instead of just saying black people? Uh, if you said non-white, non-black, uh, I use that term. Uh, it's come up on the program before. I use that term because I've concluded that everyone, uh, not all of the individual people who are not accepted, not classified as white, not all of them are black. I've concluded that white people make a distinction between some of the non-white people to say that these are black people and these, although they are non-white people, they are not black and I've concluded that everyone that the racists classifies, tags, puts you in the black category, you are going to be treated way worse. You are going to be subjected to much higher levels of terrorism than all of the non-white people who are not classified as black. Uh, but that's something that I think is important. Uh, and I've been saying this for years now. Um, that I do think that that distinction exists, not because I'm making it up, but because that's what I see racists doing worldwide, making a distinction between non-white people that are black and non-white people that are not black. But that's why I say it. But, well, I guess I'm not being clear in my communication. I hear it used, um, I guess, jointly, combinedly when, uh, some of the callers say non-white black people. To me, it would just be the same thing to just say black people. Okay. And maybe I'm somewhat confused with that terminology, terminology non-white black people, because if you, to me, it says you're already black. So I don't have to say non-white. I already know that you're black. So I wonder why sometimes people say non-white black people. Okay. I think some, and some of those people might be here. I think sometimes they say just because they uh, talk about racism, white supremacy, and they'll say non-white people. And then they'll add the black on just to make sure that they're clarifying and being specific that they're talking about, yes, a non-white person, but a black person specifically. Um, I think that might be oh, okay. what's happening, but I'm sure if any of those folks are here, if uh, that's not what it is, or you have a better explanation, you can feel free to. Yes, yes, sir, uh, caller. I, I think it's, that's just my means of uh, uh, the way I interpret uh, 
they uh, they made up this whole uh, system of racist white supremacy. Is words, uh, is uh, uh, thought, speech, and behavior. And uh, through it, my interpretation is that they are declaring the person that you are listening to right now as a person who does not make the uh, qualifications of being white. So therefore, I say non-white. And they also have made up uh, this uh, fictitious color spectrum uh, from a uh, what they also identify as a racial uh, point of view as being black. They made that up, brown. Uh, uh, well, not not necessarily brown, but black, red, yellow. You know, people, so uh, so on and so forth. And that's why I uh, state uh, a lot of times non-white black people. It's my interpretation of of racist uh, 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 philosophy or understanding. Codification. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, I think one of the things that I'm going to be on the lookout for for 2015, uh, number one, uh, the Jonathan Farrell uh, murder trial. That should be coming up this year uh, down in North Carolina. That's one uh, I suspect will get a lot more attention with everything that's happened to close out 2014. Uh, Daniel Holtzclaw should be going to trial this year as well. That's definitely one to keep an eye on, uh, particularly if a lot of the victims end up testifying and you get more details about what he did and how long. Uh, this went on and did the uh, Oklahoma Police Department, did they help cover this up? Um, that's definitely one to keep an eye on for 2015. Uh, my opinion, I think President Obama, this is going to be the worst year of his term in the White House. Uh, the Republican majority in the Congress grew and they will now have a majority in the Senate as well. Uh, and I think they are gearing up. Uh, to make everyone I think it's I think it's going to so significant significantly increase the racist vitriol and hatred directed towards President Obama and probably all of the Obamas at the White House that I think that's going to trickle down to how whites are treating and dealing with everyday black people. I think that's how intense it's going to be. Uh, specifically on President Obama and white people just being furious with him, blaming him for all kinds of stuff that it's going to be so significant that we will feel it. Uh, I think that's something to watch out for and just how whites are talking about him, uh, even the white people that you're around, how President Obama's being talked about this year. Everything, um, 
um, just went backwards. Like it was a point where everybody, because they, you know, that term fair, obviously, you know, that mean white, you know. So he should have just said, well, I don't know if he might have been forced to say that term or maybe that was just him saying that. But, you know, that's what he said in the interview. But he made it sound like as, as though it already happened. Everybody was getting, you know, just treatment. And everything reversed after that. Like, it's some kind of um, example we can refer to in the past. Like, okay, well, can we go back to that point? This is when this country is at its best. Yes, sir. Hey, Gus. Um, thanks for the show all year. Um, you did a great job. And um, <clears throat> in particular, you did two shows in September, um, back-to-back with two white women. And those two shows, man, that was just excellent, man. I mean, they just pointed it all out. Um, I think it was um, the Wheat Money Lady and Debbie Irvin. But those two shows back-to-back, that was just excellent. So I just wanted to thank you. Um, those was, those two shows back to back just was so you know profound to me. Mm, it was a person on my Facebook page. Someone had sent them a link where they were uh, <laughs> they were recommending Debbie Irving's book as uh, as Christmas gifts uh, for people to. <laughs> to grasp racism I just, while we have, we have a lot of work to do because I said when she was on the program I said her book is not worth toilet paper so they're giving it out for Christmas gifts like man that is uh, man don't know what to say on that one I will say with Krista Tyler though um, I did learn I her book I learned some things from the book and uh, I definitely think it was informative to have her on the program to uh to hear her thoughts, but I especially appreciated the female caller who was saying yesterday that she she heard her the first time and she sounded like other white people that she'd known. And she was like, hey, this is a good white woman. You know, she's not so bad. She's really, you know, trying to make it happen. And she said the more that she listened to her, it was just like, man. I hate this woman. She is the worst, right? Like just really, she said layers. I think that was what she kept saying layers uh, and really having to pay attention to the words that she's using and while you're analyzing what she's talking about, the behaviors that she's engaged in. But I think she, that right there, in my opinion, Crystal Tyler is just a phenomenal illustration of so much of the uh, pathology uh, that is being a white person. Uh, her saying explicitly that she wanted his uh, genetics. She wanted his genetics DNA. Exactly. Exactly. The vitriol yeah, yeah. she had for black females. Yeah. I thought that, that On top came... of that, he was a, a homeless crackhead. Something, oh, yeah. Something. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she was, oh, man. That was just excellent. Man. I mean, that was entertainment to me. I was like, oh, it don't get no worse than this. I just and, and you notice every both times when you have it was something going on in the background. First time it was something with the husband, and then something with the nephew. The second time, <laughs> yeah, she she was a trip. I was hoping her husband would come on the program just to get some insight to his mind set. He was invited. I think that Gus 
And I think at one time Gus invited her to invite her husband to join the discussion. He was invited both times. I told her, you know, it would be great uh, to hear him. And she said that the first time that he listened, I guess, I don't think he listened to the whole thing, but he came in at some point and he, you know, listened for a sustained amount of time. And that uh, he told her, you know, uh, you tell them to go F themselves. Like He was really upset <laughs> at the questions or whatever that were being asked. And I, I talked to her about that in between her first and second visits. And she said, uh, in a real, I mean, and this is for the people who say that she's stupid. She said, hey, he's a crackhead. He doesn't have a job. He's a convict. He doesn't have anything to have any pride or anything that he can, you know, any sense of accomplishment. One of the few things that he can do is at least try to defend his white wife. So, of course, he's going to, you know go on attack against you all to defend me. Of course he's going to do that. <laughs> it's just like, it, she's stupid. She's stupid about, right, right, right. And so with, she's married to a, a black person? Yes, a black crackhead. Yeah. Crack addict. That was, oh, that's, she called him a, a crackhead? He is. No, he I mean, is that's what he is. That's what he is. Yes. Right, wow. You know. I could be, I could be, I could be wrong about it, but I would suspect that he would not come on the program uh it seems as though that this white woman that he is married to is very chatty uh she is the voice of the house so to speak and uh he would be i i i, I think he would be quite embarrassed uh and develop uh, enough anger to hang up the phone uh, uh, so I, I don't even think he would bother. I could be wrong, but, uh, I, I think she's like, you know, seriously, you know, very dominant. Uh, I, I, I studied the, the, uh, the interview and she, rem she is, she reminds me of a, of a, a white female that I worked with when I was in training with the fire department and, and, I mean, behave almost in the same way, very chatty, uh, always meandering around the, uh, the workroom, attempting to strike up conversations with people, and very loud, but would uh, uh, speak about her adventures of going to the quote-unquote ghetto uh, with her uh, black female friend's uh, uh, apartment. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty much down with, with black people because of it. Uh, and I, I just think from the standpoint on the questions that he would be asked, that he would be, uh, utterly embarrassed. Uh, and, uh, so he wouldn't even bother, I, but I could be wrong. You know I mean? I, I, I just very, I'm very serious that he would ever want to come on that, on the program for that, for those reasons. I wonder what impact their relationship is going to have on their child. Oof. Well, what I wonder is, you know, in my in my experience in life, I mean, usually if someone's with a crackhead, they're a crackhead too. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I looked at her picture. I wasn't too sure looking at her. You know, I was a little... I wouldn't be surprised. You know, if she don't do 
dib and dab a little. I mean, it just it's just not logical to me. I mean, if my wife was a crackhead, I ain't gonna be here. I mean, it's every crazy. every call, every call that I've been on in that type of situation where there there were there was a person that uh, uh, on on crack cocaine. Uh, and they had a partner within that apartment, or, or, or right by them. That person was in the same condition. Absolutely, yeah. I just, it just doesn't seem you're up and moving about with your kid. I mean, that's a crackhead move. I mean, it's just maybe they got better crack in St. Louis. I don't know. That's probably why she spent so much time there. I don't know. It just, it's just not logical to me. I think it's the white savior effect. But she was a great study. She was a great study. Real good study on white females and how dangerous they are. I asked her if they were seeing a psychiatrist. She said no. (laughs) (laughs) That did come out of the whole Ferguson thing (laughs) to the person who was talking about the white savior. Um, That's how I found out about her. It wasn't that somebody sent me her book. It was they sent me a video of her down in Ferguson with her husband, victim, and their uh, mulatto child, quote unquote, non-white child with a white parent. Um, That video, they got like a million views or what have you. And I mean, she went twice. Uh, and that even that, I mean, she talked about that on the second visit, talking about how they sat and were cheering on uh, them to turn the car over after they had left. Uh, they're sitting comfortably at home watching this on their, you know, flat screen television. Uh, even that, I think, goes to, to some of her motivations, both uh, in the bedroom uh, and in total in terms of how she functions uh, around black people. The fact that she would up and leave with her family. You got a young child and you're going to hop in the car and go thousands of miles so that you can be down in Ferguson. I think that that speaks volume uh, to uh, exactly what was just said. Tim Wise and, and these other white folks, they got to come in and be white Jesus, not racist. Another thing also, too, I know one of the callers when, on your second interview with her, he was asking her basically like on a scale of one to 10, how would she rate herself? Because he, he hadn't seen her. And after that, I went to the video and saw the video of her. And I don't think she would be on the top of the, you know, the, the, the picture with, with the white women. And if you look at, she, you know, she's not very attractive, but I know noticed that every time she talked about, she wanted to be accepted by the, by the black women and being the inner black women. And knowing that when she gets, and just from experience, if you notice a lot of white women who hang out with black females, you know, the black guys that come in the group and they'll gravitate toward the white women, no matter how they look, you know, and she knows that she'll be at the top of the the, the pecking order in that circle of black females because she knows she's at the bottom of the total pole with regular white women. That's how I took it because she's always, even in high school, she wanted to be accepted, be accepted by the black women, and she still was sexually wanting to sue black guys also, too, when she was in high school. And now, like I said, she's in a position, in a dominant position with a guy who she can actually control, who's a crackhead, who may not have a high set of standards also, too, because he's, you know, he's down and out. And so she feels, you know, she's, at the same time, like I said, she's the, 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 the savior and 
at the same time too, she has her her jeans that she's all that's the the black jeans that she always wanted. That's how I see it's all it. about maneuvering. Yeah, I, I've I've seen it since high school. It's in most in most cases like uh, always been approached like a fetish. It's always been something about either my ethnicity or you know I, I've always thought it was weird. When someone says you know someone like refers to your I guess your 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 melanin is like chocolate or something like that. So I'm not a candy bar or anything like that, but that's how some some of them approach it, or uh, like one of those uh, I guess like wet fantasies or something. And yeah, you know, once they're around, you know, black women either either this it's it's like some kind of weird competitive type thing where uh, some try to get in close, some try to I guess infiltrate in a way. Others like go too far, you know, trying to be something they're not, and it's like an ulterior motive to it. So once I see those situations, like I, like, okay, I hate you deal with this. I try to stay far away from it. Gus, what book was it that you read? I remember one time there was some book that you read, and you were sharing it with Doctor Wilson. Where white woman. Do you remember that? Um, can you repeat the last part, please? It was some book that you read, and you were sharing some of the. narrative from the book with Dr. Welsing, and in the book it said it didn't matter what the white woman looked like, as long as she was white, she could have no teeth, uh, a black man would like white women. <clears throat> it, uh... And... Do you remember that book? Yeah, I, I sounds, can't remember. If it's one of the earlier programs with her, my suspicion would be uh, it's from Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, where uh, he has it, a passage. Yeah. I just recommended that book to someone. They just had a photo of him. It was a cynical African and one of our uh, listeners. They, they had a photo of some uh, sexual perversion where white people were using him to sell this phallic symbol thing. But yeah, Soul on Ice, uh, Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, last few uh, minutes before we uh, will have done our full three hours. Folks have anything else they want to make sure they get in from this year, things they're thinking are going to happen or looking forward to patterns that they think are going to uh, loom large in 2015. I am curious to see where all of this uh, momentum and conversation, where it goes, where people have been so active around racism, uh, what that's going to look like as 2015. Uh, unfolds as I said those tri- Jonathan Farrell murder trial coming up um, I think that should get a lot more attention or hope it will uh, as well as Daniel Holtzclaw when he goes to trial later this year but uh, yeah if anybody has other things they want to make sure they get in yeah Daniel Holtzclaw I definitely am um, looking forward to that one and I'm still shocked they haven't put that on any mainstream outlet not even from as far as I know um, Sharpton and um I'm also looking forward to what happens, because it's going to happen. The next time um, someone in New York gets shot by a good old NYPD unarmed, um, how the mayor is going to respond now that he's trying to hug up to the police. 
I'm not surprised it's not getting mainstream uh, attention as part of the game. It's selective outrage. And uh, we've seen that time and time again how dangerous that is. So I, I still don't even think they have uh, the uh, jury results about uh, that Ezel Ford being shot by those cops in uh, L.A., nor the uh, situation with the uh, woman that got beat in California on the freeway. Um, I, I expect things to, like, uh, ratchet up as expected. As, uh, I mean, it, it, this is just a new year for them to show, show out, honestly. But uh, this is time where we have to consolidate and uh, use our resources, bring Wall, Black Wall Street back. Well, also, I, I want to... Oh, go ahead. So I expect that there, and be mindful that there are going to be more um, interracial relationships in the media. Watch for that, and white people with black children being pushed in the media. So watch for that. A lot of bleaching. Have you heard? Yes, sir. I think that the... Uh, hello? We can hear you. I think that the... I think the direct violence is going to pick up. Um, I know... Notice that you guys talk about two things that the white supremacist uses, uh, deceit and violence. So I know this past year they've been, you know, doing a whole lot to deceive us or you want to call it the Kansas City shuffle, you know, you have Mike Brown and if you get all the news about the Ebola, then we have something else and you can get another news about people, a plane being missing all day. They they try to do the Kansas City shuffle, try to, you know, change our minds on something, but a lot of people are, you know, catching on to what's going on. So I think a lot of uh, direct violence may happen and it, it may not be by the police Coming this year, I think it's gonna be a lot of. I think a lot of citizens gonna uh, probably ramp it up. So I, I, I don't think it's gonna just come from police uh, brutality. It's gonna be a lot of, if you want to call it what, long survivors, long. <laughs> I think long wolves uh, may, uh, you know, be more terroristic toward black people. That's what I think may happen. think the um the clowning is also gonna pick up too because like how somebody just mentioned um the black female that was uh um beat down on the highway by that uh, suspected race soldier and you know just to point out the thing on uh, how the um racist feminists they like to say how you know they try to uh pull for all women but yeah here it is you have you know, white women uh, dressing up as, you know, Ray Rice and, you know, the, uh, his um, wife, you know, clowning around. And the same thing they did with Chris Brown and Rihanna, where these kids, they um, mimic um, a, a beating or whatever. And just all kinds of, um, you know, all kinds of practice of racism, just like the that white woman. Also, I can't I can't forget that one, the one who 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 wished I think she wished to uh, kill all black people, and that other white woman who left 
night she had a female partner. Yeah, that that was big. LGBT was huge this year um, on all fronts, all the way through. They did a lot of uh, damage. That's definitely one to kind of keep an eye out uh, running. But Area 8 is always, always huge, a big weapon. Um, In that vein, I think one of the movies um, that I would pay attention to or just be on the lookout for, The Good Lord Bird. Uh, it's a book written by a black male that came out in 2013 and white people are making it a big budget production. Uh, it's another one of those antebellum period pieces. Uh, it's supposed to be depicting uh, Frederick Douglass, the legend John Brown uh, before the Civil War. But it's fiction. And so in this story, they have Frederick Douglass as a drunkard. And it's following a slave, uh, an enslaved black person who is attempting to escape. And part of this escape is the black male who's trying to escape. He gets in a dress and pretends to be a female. That's, you know, how he's going to trick them to get to escape all of this. And I believe, according to the reports that I saw already, uh, it's uh, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith's son who's going to be playing this role of the slave who's wearing a dress to escape. Yes, Jaden, I think it's going to be him in this role, but that's supposed to be coming out, and I suspect that will get a lot of attention when it comes out, because white people had lots of accolades and uh, ceremony celebrations for this book uh, called The Good Lord Bird that was written by a black person. Uh, it got like a massive New York Times endorsement. They did two, in fact, uh, book reviews that were just glowing. Uh, we should be talking about the book uh, next week with a white uh, person. She has a book and then she wrote a New York Times review of this book as well. So we should be talking about it next week. But that's something to keep an eye out for uh, as well. Uh, and just the metaphor of the interview. I think white people were being very honest uh, in that film. I think the metaphor is they use the press to kill a non-white person. White people do that all the time, literally, figuratively, all the time, where they use the press to kill non-white people all the time. Fred Hampton, 45-year anniversary. Uh, With that, uh, we will wrap things up. I am ecstatic because we have been, I think, on every day for a while, like 10 days or so, uh, to have a day off to recharge and then be ready to roll for Friday, the book study session uh, with Chris Kyle, American Sniper, segment number two. Lots to dig on that one. Uh, What white people are saying who think that this is some nonsense, that this is bogus. Uh, What Jesse Ventura has to say, like I said, his wife, she spoke with the NRA, might be good to track down what she had to say there. It's a lot uh, that you can dig on this one. I haven't seen the film yet. I'll watch it at some point. But I think this provides a great opportunity to study white pathology. Uh, Chris Kyle, white killer, white killer. That's what not American sniper, white killer. Uh, But segment number two, the normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific this Friday. I hope everybody uh, is safe and constructive. If you're going to be doing any partying, I would encourage doing it someplace where there are no white people. And if you are going to consume any alcohol or what have you, man, get to one spot and stay there. You do not want to get behind the wheel and make things easy for Dan Pantaleo, Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw at all. Uh, the race soldiers exist and you want to do everything that you can to make the best decisions to keep yourself as safe as possible. Uh, your family, people that you care about. So under those conditions, 
sobriety would be best. And I hope people uh, put that in codification. At any rate, invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal buttons in the top right corner. If you're not down with PayPal, uh, drop us uh, an email and we will get out a physical mailing address. Thanks to all who tuned in. You could have been out doing whatever, acting a fool. <laughs> and we hopefully had some constructive uh, exchanges and have folks uh, ready to roll and be productive. Hopefully people have plans for things that they are looking to accomplish, constructive things, uh, directly or indirectly tied to racism, white supremacy, and or you just solving problems uh, and improving uh, for 2015. I think that's fantastic. And hopefully people have a lot of uh, goals and then putting the plan together to achieve everything on your task list for the upcoming 12 months. Uh, We will be back soon. If you have any questions, difficulties, uh, need information, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at until justice. Good to hear from everyone. We will speak in about uh, 48 hours. Uh, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us of the importance of our ancestors. They can teach us a lot to help us solve this problem. And recognizing, appreciating our ancestors is a high form of black self-respect. Remind us to constantly exhibit the highest levels of black self-respect in all areas of people activity each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy. Signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.